0: Tom Cruise is a fascinating person because, you know, he's probably the biggest movie star in the world. And as an actor, he's he's an extremely talented actor. Any anybody who's seen his films knows that he he's really formidable. Then you think to yourself, well, what kind of a situation could it be that this individual that is so so talented and so smart because he's very smart in business as well and in organizing stunts and what have you and he's a pilot and everything what kind of a compartmentalized life does this guy have that he can do that and yet still be a true believer in Scientology because I believe that if Tom Cruise were were in a totally honest forthright interview and you say, to him do you know what the incident is uh when you reached operating fate level three did they tell you about xenu the galactic overlord and and the body thetans that are floating around earth and that they explain your negative reactive mind and and scientology is the way of eliminating or neutralizing body thetans uh do you believe that if he were being really honest he would say absolutely i believe it
1: Rick Allen Ross, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Zach. It's nice to join you.
1: Of course, of course. Y- you have one of the most interesting jobs in the world. I, I can imagine if you went to like uh, a share your job day at an elementary school with a bunch of other parents that no other parent would have the, the title of cult deprogrammer or cult expert. Um, so it- it's pretty wild what you do.
0: It's uh, it's it's a different uh, pursuit, but I've been at it for about forty years now.
1: What what drew you to dedicate your life to cults and, and helping people break free of them?
0: Well, I think it just happened serendipitously. I mean, it. I I would probably not have ever entered into this kind of work if it wasn't for the fact that this really strange group uh, targeted. A Jewish nursing home where my grandmother lived and uh, she was eighty. Oh, wow. eight, she was 82 and they uh, had their people get jobs on the staff of the nursing home so that they could target people there and my grandmother was accosted by one of these people and when I found out about it I was very unhappy that that happened. Mm. Uh, And so I went to the director of the nursing home. We worked together. We found out that five people on the paid staff were involved with this group and working as surrogates for them in the nursing home, and they were fired. And it really led to uh, me becoming an anti-cult activist community organizer. And uh, that led to working at a social service agency where I started to help families uh, along with our staff psychologist uh, that had problems with typically an adult child that was involved in a destructive cult. And we would talk to them, we would help them, and they would most of them would leave the group. And I didn't realize it, but what I was doing was called deprogramming. And that mm. was, that was in 1982, 83. And then by the end of the 80s, I was doing... Uh, this work privately. I was traveling all over the United States later I would start traveling internationally around the world doing interventions uh, to date. I've done over 500
1: Wow 500 so so you were You said you were 13 when you discovered that your grandma was getting taken advantage of
0: no and 1982. I was Nin- I,
1: 1982 I was 30. Oh 30 30 and um, so, before that, what were you doing before the the nursing home incident?
0: I was working with my cousin uh, at a wrecking yard, and we were parting out cars, inventorying them, uh, crushing metal, and uh, sometimes rebuilding some cars. And that was my my work. And I had worked at the wrecking yard for some time. I was fascinated with cars. And uh, really enjoyed that work and had no idea that my life would take a, take a turn where I would become really uh, consumed with uh, the type of work that I now do.
1: Wow. So, so if, if your grandma was never in this situation or if, if this group never tried to take advantage of your grandmother, you could have seen yourself just continuing in, in uh, sort of manual labor, wow. construction, wreckage work for the rest of your life.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I really wasn't uh, doing the heavy lifting and the mechanical work. Uh, the auto rebuilding that we did was subbed out. I was actually vice president in charge of sales, and it was a very large wrecking yard, one of the largest mm. uh, in in that region of the country. And my cousin uh, was very successful in that. And I, I just really enjoyed the work uh, because I love cars. And so I would... Uh, do things like I remember rebuilding a Corvette and uh, rebuilding an Alfa Romeo. And then at one time I had a Di Tommaso Pantera, if you can recall that Mm -hmm. car. And so there were all these exotic cars that would be rebuilt and sold. And it was just a fascinating way of making a living.
1: I enjoyed it. I'm curious, what was the first sign that you saw something was going wrong in the nursing home and and that your grandma was being taken advantage of because I, like, I imagine at, if at that time you don't really have your guard up in the same way that you do now because you don't have all the the experience and education uh, back then. What what were some of the first signs that you were like I, I think something's off here? Like the, the, this just does not seem right.
0: Well, my grandmother was shaking. She was visibly mm. shaking, and she was o- overcome. She was
1: all right uh internet internet uh disruption but but we are back um y- you were saying that your grandma was trying to communicate something to you in yiddish or she was in a nursing home and she might have said something
0: yeah my grandmother uh was visibly shaken i mean she was literally shaking and i said nice. what's wrong you know to her in yiddish i said Babi busmaster which means what's happening." And she looked at Mm. me and said, this Meshuggah lady confronted me and started preaching to me and telling me that I was going to burn in hell. And I said, how the how the heck did she get in the nursing home? And my grandmother then said, she works here. She's a nurse's aide. And that's when I realized that something really was going on. And I went to the director of the nursing home. We worked together, and at that point, uh, we identified five people that were working at the nursing home that were associated with this weird religious group that was targeting people, uh, elderly people at the nursing home, and they were mm. they were fired, and that led to me becoming um, involved in committee work. And I was appointed to a committee for the Jewish Federation, and then later to an interreligious affairs committee uh, for the Union for Reform Judaism, which is one of the largest denominations of Jews in the world. And uh, that was when I realized the problem was much bigger than just my grandmother. And I worked with co-religionists and uh, different denominations Uh, Methodists, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, Unitarians, Muslims, that were concerned about unethical proselytizing, that is recruitment Mm. of people from from one religion into another through uh, missionary outreaches, that were targeting children without parental notification and consent, that were targeting people in hospitals, uh, going unrequested to visit them, unbeknownst to their families, uh, that were, you know, just uh targeting one particular religion specifically. And in in my mm. in my case that was targeting Jews. So mm. so as we talked, we agreed on ethical principles in missionary work. And there was a brochure published uh that that was endorsed by many denominational leaders throughout our our community, our city, uh, which was Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, that led to me being asked to join the professional staff of a Jewish family and children's service in Phoenix. And there I worked with our staff psychologist, helping families that had problems with extremist groups. They would come to the agency, bringing typically an adult son, daughter, and we would work collectively together to help them to kind of unpack how they had been recruited, what had happened to them, and question uh, the propriety of the group, the actions of the group, the influence of the group that Mm. the family was concerned about. And what I didn't know is what we were doing would be deprogramming. Uh, But that is how it started in 1982. Since that time, I've done over 500 interventions across the United States and around the world mm. and uh and recognize that the problem has grown exponentially over the years. Mm. And now with the internet and social media, groups can recruit uh from platforms like YouTube, a YouTube channel, TikTok. There's a group called the TikTok cult, and they can get money from people using PayPal, and people can follow them streaming and so on. So the way of recruitment now is more often online. And it's worrisome because that means that a child who has an electronic device that's able to bring them online could be reached by a group unbeknownst to their Mm -hmm. family. And uh, that is happening. And many people are being recruited Every day online, and the International Cultic Studies Association, which kind of takes complaints over the years, has said that there have been more than ten thousand individual groups identified through complaints in North America alone.
1: Mm. Yeah, I saw something about the the TikTok cult. Is there a cult called the Garden, or like a place called the Garden? I I, I remember seeing something online about a cult that was recruiting people and they got on TikTok and people from TikTok actually started investigating the cult. And there was something about it on Vice that I saw. I didn't watch the entire video, but um, it it seems like TikTok in general and Instagram, the the places where younger people are who may not have fully formed ideas of the world or haven't been exposed to how manipulative people can be, that seems like it would be a pretty like a, a breeding ground that's pretty rife for a group, like a cult, to work their way into the, the the teenage young adult dialogue to kind of like sneak in there through doing TikTok dances. And like four days later, they're just like sending you materials on how to join or something like that.
0: Well, this particular group that's called the TikTok Cult is a uh, production company slash church. Uh, headed by one family and led by the father of that family. I can't recall the exact Mm. name, but if you just Google TikTok cult, it'll come up. I think the name of the uh, leader is Shin, Mm. S-H-I-N. And the way it came to public attention was there was a very popular dance group uh, and dancers that were that were doing TikTok clips. And uh, they had quite a following, uh, two sisters. And one of them became deeply involved in this group and under the control of the leader. They actually uh, live together, worship together, work together. And uh, the leader is very rich and has, uh, in my opinion, exploited and taken advantage of these dancers and other people to basically exploit their labor for his profit
1: mm-hmm. does. So there are, there are a few influencers that will come out and as a joke, they'll call their followers a cult online. They'll be like, come join my cult. Does that make it harder for you to decipher? Like what is a cult and what's not? Since people like it, it's almost become like uh You know, a a joke at this point where it's like, you know, followers of the podcast, like you're all part of my cult and like I'm going to indoctrinate you. But like behind the scenes, maybe they are running a cult, but because they're joking about it, like no one would think that they're actually doing it. Does that make it more difficult for you to decipher things? Well,
0: I think I've got a very narrow uh, definition of a destructive cult. And I think a lot of times people might label something a cult or think something is is cult like and it's actually you know fairly benign, fairly innocent. so what I would say we we would we would look for are three core characteristics that form the nucleus for any definition of a destructive cult, and these were first identified by a psychiatrist, Robert J. Lifton who published a paper at Harvard University in the 80s called cult formation and so there are three characteristics that lift and tagged one is an all-powerful totalitarian leader who becomes an object of worship and is the Defining element and driving force of the group. Whatever that leader says is right is right. Whatever that leader says is wrong is wrong. And uh, second, that the the group is knowingly using thought reform and coercive persuasion techniques to gain undue influence over the members of the group. And this is done systemically, methodically. Uh, The leader may have studied uh, coercive persuasion and thought reform. Or may have come upon these techniques through trial and error uh, over a period of time refining what he or she is doing until they lock into what can be seen as thought reform techniques and identifiable coercive persuasion. Hmm. And then finally, three, if the group is uh, to be uh, identified as a destructive cult, we want to establish that they're hurting people. Because if they're hurting people, even if they have a kind of rigid mindset that they've been indoctrinated into, and the leader is an object of worship, but they're not hurting anybody, uh, then why bother studying that group? Mm -hmm. There are are plenty of other groups to be concerned about. So Mm -hmm. that you would gauge, are there people that are being hurt? How are they being hurt? And that varies by degree from group to group. So you might have one group that's just after your money, uh, maybe free labor, but then it can escalate until you reach groups like the People's Temple led by Jim Jones, where people are are dead, you know, uh, over 900 mm. people are killed through a mass murder suicide in the 70s. Or you have somebody like Charlie Manson, who weaponizes his followers to kill for him. That would be the most extreme, let's say 1 to 10. You put those groups at a 10. There might be other groups that are a 1, a 2, a 3. Uh, And then there are groups that evolve and change. They may escalate their harmful behavior, start off as a 3 or a 4, and end up being an 8 or a 9 or a 10. And then there are mm-hmm. groups where the leader dies and things change, and the group may a- actually move in the opposite direction and become less destructive, increasingly benign. And there have been various groups historically in the U.S. that uh, that exhibit exactly that process.
1: So, if uh, if someone is gathering, you know, a-, a cult, but they're not being particularly destructive about it, there's no financial it doesn't meet the definition of of harming people financially or physically sexual abuse like that that wouldn't be of your interest that it would be purely because there's so many cults that are causing destruction that it can't just be someone that's gaining a following just for the sake of a following It, it would have to be like influence plus destruction
0: yeah it wouldn't be for example elvis fans making a pilgrimage to graceland It wouldn't be Trekkies going to a Star Trek convention. And Mm. it it wouldn't be, for example, uh, this group that I would use as an example of maybe a cult, but a benign cult, which is uh, a group known for its uh, city that it's building north of Phoenix. I would periodically receive inquiries about them. Uh, The city is called Arcosante. And this was the, the... uh creation of an architect by the name of Paolo Soleri, and he had a philosophy mm. called arcology and people would come and help build the city and this has been going on since the 1960s and people would apprentice they would uh make what they call the arcosante bells which are cast in bronze and are highly sought after uh fairly expensive and uh, they wouldn't make a lot of money they would uh basically get room and board they would have some stipend some money that they would get uh and they would be devoted to paulo Soleri, who you could see as the defining element and driving force of arcosante but mm-hmm. i never knew of anyone to come to me over decades and say this group paulo Soleri. Hurt me in some way. In fact, uh, people would come and go from Marco Sante. They might decide to leave, and that's something else you want to look for. Zach is that: is there a legitimate reason to leave, or if you leave, hmm. are you labeled in a very negative way, and people cut you off, and they see you as as somehow? even threatening because you have left the group, and you're ostracized, shunned, etc. Uh, that might happen if you're a Scientologist and you leave Scientology, or if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you criticize uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, they might disfellowship you and shun you. Uh, mm. there, are, there are groups that do that. But in Arcosante, they would encourage people to visit, maintain their friendships, They would have reunions. Uh, This was an example of a group that I think could be called maybe a cult of personality because of the defining element of arcology wrought by Paulo Solari, but not a destructive Mm -hmm. cult.
1: This is something that just popped into my head, but I was wondering if for the people that you've deprogrammed, do you find that – they often lack a sense of humor because I'm just wondering like I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy and when things seem ridiculous if you have somewhat of a sense of humor the first thing you do is like you turn to your friend and you start making jokes about it and you're like how fucking like stupid is this shit like and then you start like talking about things you see in the room or like what someone says do you do you find that in the over 500 deprogrammings that you've done, like, has there been any link to people not having a sense of humor or maybe uh, just like a, a certain personality type or something like that?
0: Well, what I see is uh, kind of a stilted way of talking and talking with uh, uh, group cliches, group verbiage. And there is a kind of programmed quality to a lot of that type of, of talk. And yes, they do often seem to lose a sense of humor. Uh, certainly, there's no sense of humor about the group or the leader, because <clears throat> that that would not yeah. be to- that would not be tolerated. Uh, cult leaders tend to be rather thin skin when it comes to any kind of uh, humor. They're they're not given to self-deprecating humor, for example. But uh, yeah. but I yeah I would say that there's a a lack of spontaneity, a, a you know and things become more uh, uh, you know confined, stilted. Uh, you pick up on a lot of uh, jargon that they've picked up in the group, and that they tend to express themselves in those through that language, or what Lifton calls in the Construct of Thought Reform loaded language thought-terminating cliches. For example, uh, in a a Bible-based cult that claims to rely on the Bible, they might say that if you doubt the group, that isn't you doubting, it's Satan attacking your mind. And so they would call that okay. uh, satanic thinking. Uh, if, if a woman... Uh, asserts herself and is independent, they might say, well, that's a Jezebel spirit. And that would be another kind of click, thought-terminating cliché. In Scientology, if someone criticizes the group, they could be considered a suppressive person. And those around them could be seen as a potential trouble source because a suppressive person is in their life. And then Scientology also talks about the negative reactive mind. So there, there's this jargon that you're constantly hearing from someone that's involved in a kind of totalist group that is, you know, kind of reminiscent of 1984, George Orwell. It's uh, it's a, uh, it, it's kind of a, it reflects a very rigid mindset and a, and a constricted way of thinking.
1: Mm. So if I was at a cult meeting and I just dropped to the floor, like pretended to have a seizure and then I was like, sorry, guys, I'm fine. I was just Satan attacking my mind like that wouldn't be taken too kindly. Uh, that <laughs> or They might take would... it too seriously and be like, oh, my God.
0: <laughs> well, first, they would they could take it very seriously. And then second, yeah. they could see it as uh, you making fun of things that they take very seriously. And so they would not yeah. appreciate it. No. And, uh you know Zach, I often have infiltrated uh different cult groups uh to observe them to watch them and I've actually seen uh deliverance ministry you know churches uh where people are speaking in tongues and and uh and it's really kind of chaotic I mean uh Pentecostal churches uh will appreciate speaking in tongues, which is uh often called glossolalia or chatter talk they claim that Mm. it's from the holy spirit and in a typical pentecostal church there's order to it Uh, it doesn't mean that the group is a cult or that people are brainwashed but in a a destructive cult you'll have it being very chaotic Uh, people you'll have dozens of people speaking in tongues simultaneously and it, it can really over, overwhelm you if you're in that kind of a setting. So there are different different things that different groups do to kind of still the mind. So it could be a kind of group meditation that's taken to extremes. Uh, it could be speaking in tongues. It could be chanting. Uh, it could be dancing, breathing uh, intensely hmm. in, a, in a certain me- method. You know, so there are different groups that have ways of, I would say, breaking people down so that they can change them. And then through the group uh, social isolation, creating a kind of bubble world, they can then uh, lock in that change.
1: Mm. So So how deep have you gone into cult recruitment? Because like you're basically a cult spy, like you're infiltrating colts at that point like have you ever been like a temporary member beyond just going to the first meeting just to see what it's about
0: no i have not done that and i would not suggest doing that because in my opinion no matter how strong you think your mind is you can be had the the Mm. key is just opportunity uh time and just you know going going at you for example uh in 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 the 1970s and in the 80s and probably still today there are isolated retreats in the united states uh that are run by the unification church commonly called the moonies who worship now deceased reverend sun Meng moon as their messiah and god they called him true father Mm -hmm. parent so they would uh, recruit people that were like backpacking across the country Uh, Some of them might be from Canada or another state, and they're coming through a bus station or an airport or something. And someone approaches them from the Unification Church, asks them to a free dinner. That leads to them going to uh, a Mooney retreat or camp. They used to have one called Camp K in Northern California. And Zach, in two weeks, they would typically break someone down and make them into a mooney. now it wouldn't work with every, wow two it, weeks it, it wouldn't work with everybody but it worked with some
1: and typically and backpackers are i, I was just going to say backpackers are typically you know pretty open-minded yeah. people so like i mean you have to at least be willing to take a level of risk and explore but may i, I would think that someone like that would question things so you have to have your guard up while you're backpacking but maybe it works the other way, where you're so open that you're maybe not questioning things as much. I I don't know. Or or but that, could, that's crazy.
0: It it could be that you're a guy and the person who approaches you is a really nice looking girl who flirts with too. you, who flirts with you, <laughs> and acts like, "Yay, hey, you know, come to dinner." You might catch onto some people. I mean, I really like you. I think you're cool. Let's do this. And you go to the dinner and the next thing you know, you're, you're seeing, Hey, some of these girls at the dinner, some of these women, they're pretty hot, you know, and now they've asked me to go to their camp. That sounds like an opportunity. These people are nice. The camp is free. I, I think I'll go. And then you're stuck there. And uh, Mm. you you may not even know where you are because typically they would turn the lights on in the bus, take you at night, and you couldn't really see clearly out of the bus. So you don't know exactly where you are. You're in this Mooney camp and you're there for two weeks and they're not letting you sleep more than four to five hours a night. And they're feeding you low protein diet. And so they're kind of wearing you down. And then you're going to all these talks and you're you're doing calisthenics and whatever. Uh, it's a system. And and Reverend Moon, I think, studied uh, thought reform, coercive persuasion, and depth. Uh, I believe he was a prisoner in a North Korean POW camp, and they certainly used mm. those methods to break prisoners. And that's what's going on. You're in a Mooney camp, and that's what's going on. And it... I would say there's one, uh, consistent thread that you can pull through a lot of these situations. That is, are you happy? Are you, are you a happy mm. camper? Are are you happy with your life? Are you the backpacker that's thinking, God, everything's going so great in my life. I can't wait to, to, uh, get back to school in the fall. I, I'm doing so well in school. My parents are great. I've got a great girlfriend. Everything's going great for me. Uh, That kind of a person is not going to be as easy to recruit as someone Mm -hmm. who's going through a bad patch. Uh, Maybe your first year in college didn't go the way you planned. Your grades weren't that great. Uh, Your girlfriend broke up with you. Your parents are getting divorced. Your mom died. Something bad happened or a number of things. And you're at a a kind of broken state in your life. You're not feeling good. You're not happy. If that's the case, then when the group comes on with their thought reform techniques, they can drill into your weaknesses and then use that Mm. to leverage you. So we're all susceptible to that at certain times in our life. And the question is, are we going to have bad luck? Are we at a time that we're down, that we're feeling kind of miserable? Is that going to be when a friend or someone that we trust or we think might be a good new friend or whatever, that person approaches us and says, hey, why don't you come to this seminar? Why don't you come to this retreat? Why don't you come to our Bible study, our church service? And you think that it's benign. And of course, they're being deceptive. They're not going to tell you everything that they're about. And so it's kind of like a bait and switch con and they're mm-hmm. going to lure you in. And if you're vulnerable, you might think, well, maybe this will help me. Maybe this could be a good thing for me. And these people, they seem nice. And usually they are.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I imagined the with Colts not really telling you the full story when you Enter into the first meeting. I imagine social media is like a double edged sword for them because, on one side, you can recruit more people, you can record a 30 second video and have 10 million people see it. But on the other hand, there's so much more information out there. So if you invite someone to a meeting, And then they type in on Reddit, like, you know, meeting in this place. And then other people are like, Oh, yeah, some guy came up to me when I was backpacking and like, told me to come here. And it was super sketchy, blah, blah, blah. Like, there are also more people sharing their experiences. And, you know, people like you who are actually, I don't know if there's anyone else like you. I'm sure that there are other people like you that are deep programmers. Um, But you're sharing everything online, you're doing podcasts, you have a YouTube channel. So like, that aspect of social media uh is not good for a cult from a cult's perspective
0: well yeah you know zach when i launched uh the cult education institute which is a huge database culteducation.com in 1996 i thought this is it i mean i'm going to tell everybody what is behind the curtain with Scientology, I'm going to have all this information about Scientology online. People are not going to have to pay for it, mm-hmm. moving up what they call the operating thetan levels. Uh, I'm going to have all this information about all these groups, hundreds of groups online, immediately accessible uh, through through uh, a smartphone eventually. And, and at that time, initially, uh, people were using desktops, laptops later. So I thought, yeah, this is it. This is the, the, the key ingredient to diffuse the ability of groups to indoctrinate and manipulate people. But I didn't realize that the Internet was going to be a two-edged sword. And that at the same time that I was sharing information, and, and you're right, using social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, trying to tell people about different groups every day. Uh, I thought that's going to, that's really going to make a difference. It does make a difference, but I never took into account how incredibly useful the internet would be to uh, groups called cults and how, how Mm -hmm. much, how many people would be pulled in online and, and how algorithms could actually be a part of the formula. That is, uh how how are you meta tagging your information and so forth mm-hmm. that someone mm-hmm. who's googling some subject or interest might then pick up your video your website your your name uh, through a google search and mm-hmm. I, i'm not saying that google is malevolent but i am saying that these groups are and they know how to utilize all the search engine optimization techniques and everything so that you will pick them up online. And then once you're involved with them, they're going to tell you, Oh yeah, there's bad stuff about us online. There's this guy. There's that website. Don't listen to them. They're very negative people. They're they're trying to keep you from expanding your consciousness, from mm-hmm. from getting salvation, from knowing the political truth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they have a way of dismissing, uh, with thought-terminating cliches, any anyone else with a with a different perspective online.
1: Mm. In the past few decades that you've been doing this, how does the war on cults feel like it's been going from a general standpoint? Because like the war on drugs, for example, you know since it's been happening, uh, you know the the Reagan era where it was like just say no, the the war on drugs was declared. But I can go outside my Brooklyn apartment and pretty much like if I wanted to, there's even apps like you can order drugs on apps and it comes to your door and. It doesn't seem like it's really making a dent. Does the war on cults seem like that, or does it seem does it feel like you're making a dent in cult recruitment from what you've seen?
0: I think uh I think that that it's it's getting better. I think in the last few years that there have been a number of situations that have been extremely high profile, for example, Nexium, which I was very deeply involved in dealing with. There were times that I thought that cult leader, Keith Ranieri, would never come down, no matter what he did. Mm. Uh, I mean, there were people complaining to authorities about his illegal activities for years, but he's now in prison serving a 120-year sentence. And uh, also mm. you saw the Sarah, what would, became known as the Sarah Lawrence cult, Uh, the followers of Lawrence Ray, Larry Ray, who recruited kids going to college at Sarah Lawrence, uh, turning some of them into prostitutes Mm. that would give money to him. Uh, He's probably going to get a a natural life sentence. Uh, So there are Mm. people that are being prosecuted. I think that we may have turned a corner where the criminal activities of destructive cults will be uh dealt with and and i think that we've seen cases of of prosecutions going forward repeatedly i testify as an expert witness in court cases and i've testified in criminal cases uh, lawsuits for wrong wrongful death personal injury but also uh, child custody cases and i'm 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 encouraged by uh, what I've seen in child custody, that frequently the courts recognize that a minor child is better off with a parent that is not in a group that has been called a cult than having uh, having them with that parent that, yeah. uh, that could hurt them. Because some of these groups, Zach, they have very harmful beliefs, Uh, They may not believe in modern medicine. There's a group called Followers of Christ and another group called the General Mm. Assembly Church of the Firstborn. And children are dying every year from medical neglect that they could have been saved by modern medicine, but the group absolutely will not allow it to happen. And they have, in some states, religious exemptions so that they cannot be prosecuted. But that's been changing, and more and more states are dropping those exemptions. And I'm I'm hopeful on that front as well.
1: You've spoken about the, the charismatic leader being the single most salient aspect of a cult. What makes for an effective cult leader? Like, what are the ingredients that make someone good at at doing that? Uh,
0: Being a sociopath or a psychopath, uh, typically the cult leaders that I've met, and I've met many uh, over the years and dealt with them, uh, they are intensely narcissistic uh, people. Uh, You would say some of them malignant narcissists. Certainly, they fit the Mm. profile, many of them, of NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. And they have no empathy. They don't care about people. In their book, uh, good is what's good for me, right is what's right for me, bad is what I don't like and isn't beneficial to me, and that's what's wrong. So they just have no conscience. Uh, they have no empathy. Uh, they have sympathy for themselves. They often see themselves as victims of persecution or conspiracies, but in reality, uh, they they don't take responsibility for anything. They they never apologize. Uh, typically, uh, they are never wrong. Uh, they're loath to admit when mm-hmm. they make a mistake, and so that is the type of person that uh, can run a destructive cult. That can run uh, people into the ground, can abuse people, exploit mm. people, hurt people, and not feel anything about it. I mean, Keith Ranieri, who I met on on occasions, uh, he he sued me for fourteen years, and he had me put under surveillance uh, through a private. Uh, investigation company in in manhattan called interfor and i met with ranieri Mm. Uh, there was court ordered mediation uh, settlement uh meetings uh there were also depositions i sat through his deposition and what i was impressed by was just the fact that he had no no emotional connection to anybody that he had hurt anybody that he had negatively mm. affected uh and and he hurt a lot of people uh, he had women tortured uh they were branded with his initials with a cauterizing iron uh and and that that is what eventually brought him down is that when he created this group of sex slaves that was headed by Allison Mack, the actor that you might have seen in the television series Smallville, who's yeah. now, who's now in prison? Uh, they they uh, tortured women. They branded them. They he used women, and and he was a pedophile. He raped children, and and abused children. So what i saw when i met renneri and this i see over and over again when i meet these cult leaders is their lack of emotion they they just don't have an emotional connection that with the, with the victims that they have hurt uh for them it's just uh, it's nothing
1: mm. so s- sociopaths psychopaths lack of emotion masters in deferring accountability uh tendencies toward violence or an extreme violence can you would have you ever tried to deprogram the leader of a cult or would that be a waste of time like is there any deprogramming the leader
0: i i once Or they're,
1: they're just like it is what it is there
0: was one deprogrammer back in in the early 90s who claimed that he might be able to deprogram david koresh uh i had deprogrammed two waco davidians followers of, we, yeah. of david koresh In 1992, there was a standoff between federal officials, the FBI, the BATF, and this small cult, Bible-based cult, led by a man that I initially knew as Vernon Howell, later gave himself the name David Koresh. The standoff went on for 51 days. It was one of the longest standoffs in American history. Uh, Before the standoff, I deprogrammed one Davidian uh, who would give... uh, testimony and affidavit to the bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms in the process of them gaining a getting a warrant in court to search the compound for illegal weapons and that ended up being a a shootout a number of people died there was then a 51 day standoff during that standoff uh the government was encircling the compound outside of waco texas And there were uh, almost 100 people that were inside, uh, including many children. And ultimately, David Koresh decided that rather than surrender, he would burn the compound down and all of the people inside died. And there would be many anti-government conspiracy theories about what happened, but there was audio recordings, infrared photography of the ignition points, and all the physical evidence uh, and the forensic evidence afterwards, the accelerant trails that were found, et cetera, proved that it, would, mm-hmm. it was a deliberately set fire. Well, going mm-hmm. back to when I was working for CBS News as an analyst uh, during the standoff, because of my knowledge of the Waco Davidians and my background, I, I got a call from somebody who said, uh, an, another deprogrammer who said, well, I think I can deprogram David Koresh. And I remember saying to him, how can you deprogram someone who is a psychopath? This is not someone who has been programmed through indoctrination, through thought reform, through coercive persuasion. This is someone who is what they are. They're hardwired. And uh, whatever it is, whatever their demons are... It cannot be deprogrammed. You cannot deprogram mental illness. You cannot deprogram a sociopath, a psychopath, or for that matter, someone with NPD is unlikely to respond that well to therapy mm. according to the research so what you what what can you do with a cult leader
1: uh you can hope that lobotomy uh, <laughs> lobotomy uh brain well, transplant well if, if <laughs> something look, like that
0: exact you know i mean there are cult leaders who are not as bad as other cult leaders so if they're not criminal if they don't cross that line if they're not raping kids and sexually abusing women and and torturing people and doing violent things, then the, the law is not going to come to their doorstep. I mean, why do, mm. why do the authorities deal with a, a destructive cult? Because they typically have broken the law. And that may range from tax mm. fraud, to sex trafficking, to uh, violent criminal acts. You know, you have the group in Japan, Aum Shinrikyo, that was led by Shoko Asahara, they released sarin, a poison gas used in the gas chambers in the concentration camps run by the Nazis. They released that gas in the Tokyo subway system. There were thousands, thousands of people that were affected, uh, many that died. Uh, that was in 1995. And Asahara would be prosecuted. And he would eventually be executed for his crimes, as as would, I think, uh, some other members that followed him in Om um, Shinrikyo. So there are groups that are violent. And when they become violent and they hurt people, the law comes into play. But if they're just taking advantage of people and people are being exploited through free labor, through uh, donations that they're extracting from people, they may get away with it indefinitely and many cult leaders just get rich as opposed to getting convicted mm. of any crime. Mm.
1: You mentioned Jim Jones before and the People's Temple and and I wanted to go back to him cuz he seems like one of the most infamous and interesting cult leaders because he like he he's had pictures with celebrities, politicians, people thought of him as a civil rights leader before Shit hit the fan and like he started unleashing that destructive aspect can you talk about the arc of jim jones from his rise to the eventual jonestown massacre
0: well you know i did a documentary with his biological son and i met his adopted son and uh i've met Mm. many uh survivors of jonestown over the years uh it And I would say that Jim Jones, uh, first of all, he was an ordained Disciples of Christ minister, which is a mainline denomination within the Protestants. Mm. And uh, he also was a community activist. He was really a a popular, iconic figure in in the 70s in San Francisco. Mayor Moscone appointed him to a housing commission uh, he posed for pictures with then Governor Jerry Brown. He knew Willie Brown, state assemblyman. He even did a photo op with Rosalind Carter when she was First Lady yeah. of the United States. And so the People's Temple was at one point, it was a mega church. There were thousands of people going to that church and they had a satellite in Los Angeles and they were known for being uh, very liberal. Uh, Jim Jones was aligned with liberal Democrats. Uh, He was a kind of grassroots organizer. He could turn out his people and they could turn out the vote. They would go door to door. They would do whatever Jim Jones wanted them to do. Uh, And uh, he had a program to feed feed the elderly. He had a program to help drug addicts. And the church was seen as a kind of interracial, uh, very, uh, very positive church for a long time. And there were secrets, though, and there were abuses going on inside that the general public didn't know about. And as people would leave the church because they had been abused, they had been hurt, uh, or they felt that things were not going the way they should and that uh, things were going off the rails, they were beginning to talk to the media in San Francisco. And that led to Mm. negative you know, publicity for Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And eventually what Jones decided is, I'm leaving San Francisco. And he took a thousand diehard followers and many of them children, over 200 children. And he went to uh, English-speaking Guyana and they carved out a community in the middle of the jungle that was almost inaccessible. They had uh, no radio uh, know they didn't listen to the radio Mm. they didn't watch television uh they had no access to the media to the press uh what they had was a public address system that jim jones controlled and he controlled a security force that policed the compound and and then there were complaints that began to filter back to congressman leo j ryan through his constituents people in his district in San Francisco uh that had family members that were in that compound that became known as Jonestown so he went down there mm. for fact finding uh with Jim Jones permission he entered the compound and then people started coming up to him and to his uh you know his staff and passing notes that said, please take me with you. I want to leave. Uh, and and then Congressman Ryan said, OK, I'm going to take some of these people. Jim Jones became really rather frantic. They left. They went to this isolated airstrip that they had landed in. And Jones sent his security people to kill them. And he, they were shot. Congressman Ryan was shot dead. His staffer, Jackie spear who later would become a uh, a Congresswoman representing that district. She uh, recently retired. Uh, she was shot several times and almost bled out on the tar wow. on the tarmac. And then. Jones- so they
1: got to the plane like they, they uh, got as far as the plane with the people who wanted to leave, like Jones let them think they were going to leave and they, then he yeah, shot them on the runway.
0: Yeah, exactly. Some of them escaped wow. into the jungle. Jackie uh Spear miraculously survived then jones decided look they're going to come for me it's going to be the end and this scenario would play out over and over again over the years with different cult leaders and that is that if i'm going to die i everyone else should die with me because what are they without me the most intense expression Mm. of their narcissism uh Without me, they're nothing. They need to die with me. And so they mixed cyanide, barbiturates in a fruit punch that later would be called Kool-Aid. And that's where we get the saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid or or, you drank the Kool-Aid, which is an an allusion to Jonestown. So people were i'm sure
1: kool-aid loved that uh association they they specifically
0: (laughs) didn't they specifically came out uh, with a statement and said it was flavor aid punch it was not kool-aid so
1: (laughs) that's such a that's such a funny statement to come out like someone working in pr for kool-aid be uh, like all right how do we make sure that we're intensely sorry and like we our hearts are with the victims but also like it was technically flavoring. it was like it
0: was not our it was not our punch it was their punch
1: yeah it wasn't us but yeah. uh,
0: there were over 200 children that died in jonestown and they were <sighs> murdered they were forced to drink the concoction and then many of the adults were forced many of them felt that it was hopeless after their children died. Some of them were shot. Jones uh, apparently was shot, uh, probably because uh, he didn't want to take cyanide and he thought it was a, a quicker, easier way out. And uh, we would see this scenario play out over and over again. Uh, David Koresh burning the compound down, killing himself and all of his followers. His children uh, died with him. Uh Marshall Applewhite, the leader of Heaven's Gate, he d- he decided mm. it was time for him to die. But he took everyone with him in this small cult. Thirty-nine bodies were found in this mansion they occupied near San Diego. And then the solar temple, Luke Jure, his people would all die in various uh, houses, chalets in, in Europe in 1995. And uh, mm. they... They were apparently under investigation, or Jure felt that his uh, life was going to come to an end, that he was going to be held accountable for certain financial uh, misdealings and things. So they, they all died. There were about 90 of them. And then one of the worst that people really don't know much about, or it hasn't been reported a lot, are the followers of Joseph Kibwitere in a group called the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. Uh, In the year 2000, Mm. Kibwitere said that the world would come to an end. When it didn't, people wanted to leave his isolated compound in Uganda, but he wouldn't let them. And so ultimately he killed himself and at least 750 followers that they recovered, their bodies, in the jungle. It's believed Jesus. that the actual death toll may have been over a thousand and may have surpassed Jonestown because it was difficult for the authorities to find and recover the bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kibuitere, uh saw himself as a prophet. And when his prophecy failed, rather than re-spin a new one, which is what the overwhelming majority of cult leaders will do, he decided this is it. Everyone goes uh, and we're all going to die
1: for someone like jones do you think there was any small part of him like even a flicker that was interested in civil rights or liberalism or was that just all front to maneuver and get political support and then eventually move down to guiana
0: well survivors have said that he seemed to be earnest and certainly was devoted to certain issues such as uh Uh, an end to segregation, integration. His own church reflected that, which was largely Mm -hmm. African-American, though Jones was white. Uh, But a lot of people have said this over and over again to me, that he really was out for self-aggrandizement, that it was all about promoting Mm -hmm. his name, his image, Uh, Getting into the newspapers, being reported about, being a celebrity, which he was at one time. So I think it was more about feeding his ego than anything else. And of course, course, at the end, he was heavily drug. He was a very heavy drug drug user, and uh, he was using methamphetamines, other drugs, and uh, he he wasn't. uh, He was deteriorating. And uh, his, mm. his, uh, his sons have said that about his state at the end. And by the way, the way his sons survived is they were on a basketball team that was playing against another team in Georgetown away from the compound. And uh, wow. one of them...
1: So he was going to kill his own sons if, if they were I there. I think he
0: would have. And I think that their mother, who died in, at Jonestown really wanted them to be gone and encouraged them to go and play on the team because they had some concerns about their father, about his health, his mental state of being, because he was acting increasingly erratic. And there there were people that were talking about his sexual exploitation of members in the group. And uh, that was a small community. And so I think that he was a very uh, distraught uh, anxious about being exposed in the way that he was being exposed within the compound uh but the mother of the two uh jones boys really wanted them to go and play that basketball game and i and one of them said he felt that she really knew what was going to happen and and that she understood that this was her last goodbye and that she was saving their lives
1: Mm -hmm. I was also reading that there was a woman in the the Jonestown compound that overslept the suicide meeting. Like she literally missed it because she slept in and everyone left. And then I guess she woke up and was like, I, well, I'm glad I didn't set an alarm. I, you you probably know more about that I than me. I think
0: you're talking about an elderly woman who knew what was going on and she, she hid under a bed and she may have... She, okay, she may, I, I could be she, completely she wrong. She felt, felt fallen asleep under that bed, and she did survive. Uh, but there were so many people that died, over 900. And as I said, over 200 were children. And it, it was yeah. just one of the most horrific events. That was in November of 1978, and that was four years before I began my work. But I remember it very clearly. And it was like a, uh, a just a huge siren of warning uh, announcing to the world that this is a very serious problem, these destructive cults. And there are many more. This is one. And it it really uh, was the beginning of an awareness of, of about destructive mm-hmm. cults, uh, because there was, a, uh, I think... A, a feeling in the united states before that to just kind of dismiss them uh for example uh you know charlie manson and his family uh they were seen more as a bizarre anomaly as as opposed to the beginning of an awareness about destructive cults and the same the mm. same thing when patty hurst was abducted the heiress to the hurst fortune was abducted as a, as a college student at UC Berkeley uh, at knife point by this cult called the Symbionese Liberation Army that would keep her hostage for, for quite some time. And after she was uh, found, she was actually arrested and prosecuted for participating in a bank robbery with the group. Uh, when, when wow. in fact, her defense was, look, they broke me, they put me in a closet, they beat me, they raped me. I mean, they broke me down through coercive persuasion, and I wasn't myself. And I and mm-hmm. I think that uh, the public wasn't ready to deal with that reality, that the human mind was that and is that fragile and that people can be broken in that way, as Patty Hearst was. Uh, They were more uh, apt to think of her as, oh, that's just her excuse to get out of taking responsibility for her crime. And Jimmy Carter would later commute her sentence, and Bill Clinton would pardon her. And I met Patty Hearst uh, once, uh, and we talked about this. And I think she's a Republican. And she was kind of surprised that Bill Clinton. Who I think she didn't vote for or or Jimmy Carter that she didn't go out and support uh, were so sensitive and caring and they they tried to help her and she went on with her life, she lived a fairly quiet private life, and she was not a political activist, and the SLA experience was a total isolated part of her life. Mm. And how do you explain that? How do you explain that this heiress to a, a multi-billion dollar fortune, the Hearst fortune that is linked to, you know, William Randolph Hearst and the Hearst Castle yeah. in San Simeon? How how do you explain that that young woman would become a, a member of a violent political cult for a period of time. And then after being released from prison, go on and live the rest of her life, not really involved in politics. Uh, The most controversial thing she would do is uh, she would be in some uh, uh, movies uh, directed by uh, uh, John Waters. You know, she would do serial mom and, and things like that, but, but Mm. she would, uh, she would not, uh, you know, be a political activist. She would not do anything uh, like she had done in the SLA. And the way I explain that is that she was subjected to coercive persuasion and thought reform. And she was broken down, changed and locked in by being surrounded by group members, socially isolated. And that once that that bubble was, was permeated and it was it was burst, and she was free, and she could think on her own and was no longer in this environment that was controlled by this leader who called himself Field Marshal Senkyu. Mm -hmm. She could uh, free herself and think again, and she did.
1: Yeah, I guess if the heir to a, a billionaire can be persuaded to join a cult, then I guess, does that mean that there's no sort of demographic or temperament? I, well, you said people who aren't happy, so I guess that would be temperament. But is there's no demographic really then that would be more susceptible to cult? It could just be anybody? Uh,
0: for a while, the demographic was 18 to 26, and that may still be a kind of sweet spot for cult recruitment. Uh, but that was in the days that cults really were hitting the college campuses heavily, which which hmm. they still do but they can avail themselves to the internet and social media. And what we're seeing now is uh, just a wide cross section of people being affected from every socioeconomic background, every race, every religion. uh, I don't think there really is a, a clear profile, other than if someone is in distress and they're feeling already broken to some extent, It is Mm -hmm. easier for the group through coercive persuasion to break them down the rest of the way. And then to insist that their program, their mindset, their philosophy, their belief system that they're teaching is the ultimate panacea that will cure them of whatever. And in that kind of desperate, broken state, The person will seek relief and reach for that, as Patty Hearst did and as many other people do. But, of course, in Patty Hearst's situation, the distress was inflicted upon her Mm. systematically. Uh, She was broken down. Uh, By the way, this also happened, you might remember, to Elizabeth Smart. Uh, She was abducted Mm. from her home by this itinerant prophet uh, so called uh, kind of messianic figure, Brian Mitchell. And he had only one follower, a woman named Wanda Barsey, And he abducted Elizabeth Smart, then 14 years old, at knife point, like Patty Hearst. He put her in a pit. Uh, he abused her. He broke her down. And for many months, she traveled with him and would be seen relatively free physically but psychologically and emotionally tethered to him through his process of coercive persuasion of breaking her down. And then Mm. authorities would find her reunite her with her father. And then once she was free of Mitchell, who's now in prison for probably the rest of his life. uh, And Wanda Barzi was sentenced to less time. She might actually be out now, but uh, Elizabeth smart who's now married has her own family uh, she was for a period of time the follower of Brian Mitchell in the same way that Patty Hearst was a follower of the SLA. In fact, the way I met Patty Hearst was we were both uh, doing the Today Show. Uh, she had done one, one mm. segment. I was going to follow her in another, and we collided in the green room in, uh, in, in New York. Wow. And I looked at her and I said excuse me, but are you Patty Hearst? And she gave me this look like, Oh God, who's this, you know? (laughs) And and, and she looked at me and she said, uh, yes. And so who are you? And I said, I am a friend of one of, of, of a friend of yours. And she looked at me like, yeah, right. And she said, who's that? And I said, uh, Margaret Singer, who is a a very well-known, uh, clinical psychologist, Mm. um, one of the greatest cult experts of the 20th century. And uh she worked with Patty Hurst as her counselor. Uh Margaret worked with over a thousand former cult members providing counseling for their recovery. And at that point, Patty Hearst went, Oh, Margaret, really? And then she opened up, was very yeah. uh very, very well-spoken, very, very kind, very considerate woman. But at the time that she did the Today Show, she was the one person who really understood Elizabeth Smart because she had been through the experience herself. And I remember Mm. her saying to me, you know, it's not so bad because I was talking about Elizabeth Smart and how she was doing. And she said, well, it's not so bad. Look, when they found me the next thing I knew I was handcuffed and I was under arrest. Elizabeth is going is mm. not going to be treated that way and and she uh she didn't do anything wrong. She is not going to be seen as a criminal and she's going to be helped. And in fact, now Elizabeth Smart is an outspoken advocate for victims' rights. Uh and she really has helped mm. a lot of people through her work. And so so you know, I think we need to disabuse ourselves from thinking that cult members are somehow idiots, they're incompetent, and we need to realize—and it's very uh, unsettling—to think that anybody could be had. But that—that—that's mm. the reality. You know, I've deprogrammed five medical doctors. One was an yeah, really? One was an orthopedic surgeon. Another.
1: I'm screwed then.
0: <laughs> another. Another was. Uh, was a anesthesiologist uh, one was a gastrointestinal specialist and I also have deprogrammed a clinical psychologist that was caught up in a very controlling relationship
1: so that yeah. I think ten it can happen to anybody. I was gonna say I, yeah I, I think ten podcaster brains equal one medical doctor so I, it's not looking I'll, I'll avoid the the cult meetings uh, or at least I'll try um so to get someone this is going to be a super loaded question but like to get someone to walk around and be in a psychological prison and keep following you and there's no physical constraints like you you were saying people would just openly see uh was it elizabeth smart walking around in in public and she was in this you know psychological stronghold how do cults brainwash you like like what are the the through lines of the the coercive persuasion is, is it fair to call coercive coercive persuasion brainwashing are those different things or like how does that well, work
0: okay so in my book cults inside out there's a chapter called cult brainwashing and in it I basically show that what we call cult brainwashing is actually a synthesis of identifiable influence techniques, thought reform, and coercive persuasion. And I would base that on a number of writings that I footnote in my chapter on cult brainwashing. Uh, The seminal book is Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism by Robert J. Lifton, which was published, I think, in 1961. And in it, Lifton breaks down how thought reform works. And I would uh, think of it as if he were a mechanic who pops the hood of a car. This is probably going back to my yeah. days in in, in auto wrecking. And he, he pulls yeah. the hood up, and he looks at the machine of thought reform. And he identifies the key components that keep the machine running. Uh, And there are eight Mm. that he identifies. And of those eight, he says at least six must be functional and, and simultaneously operating in order for thought reform to work. So if three parts are gone, the machine breaks down or it can't work properly. So the foundational element is what Lifton calls milieu control, or control of the environment. And that is, in the most extreme expression, a cult compound. Or it could be social isolation uh, based on rules of the group, or it could be just a hyper- hyperactive involvement in the group that is encouraged by the group mm-hmm. to the exclusion of old friends, family, and other interests. So they're monopolizing your time to the extent that they control what you read, what you see, what you hear, who you talk with, who you who you socialize with. They can control the mind because they're controlling, if you will, mm-hmm. everything that goes into the mind. And once you establish milieu control, then you build on that foundation. So there are other uh, other characteristics that lift, lift and identified. For example, mystical manipulation or planned spontaneity. And that's what we commonly call gaslighting. Somebody says something, mm. does something that you think, uh, that you respond to in a way that they have predetermined they want you to respond in that way but you think that this is all spontaneous that you're responding to something spontaneously you don't recognize that they're gaslighting you
1: and that's like you make the other person think they're the one who's crazy for questioning it
0: and and by the way a, a great Thing to do is watch the movie Gaslight with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman, which was made back in the thirties. And in this movie, I'm gonna where, write it down. That's where we get the the word gaslighting from. Ingrid Bergman is an heiress. She lives in this beautiful home in London, a townhouse, and it's lit by gaslight. And this fortune hunter, this criminal, actually, he's later identified as a, a fugitive from Justice, uh, Wanted Man, Charles Boyer, is after her money and also jewels that he believes are hidden in the house uh, from her her mother. And so subsequently, Mm. he will make the gas lights flicker. He will make noises occur in the house. And at various times, uh, Ingrid Bergman will say, did you see that? Did you hear that? And he'll say, what? What? Nothing. I didn't hear anything. Mm. I didn't see anything. And what he's trying to do is drive her to insanity and get her committed to a mental mm. hospital and then take control of their property uh, through their marriage. Uh, eventually, the way that Ingrid Bergman is free of this is she runs out of the house. He tries to control her and keep her in the house with him under his control at all times. But at one point she she gets out and then she meets a man on on while she's walking in the neighborhood and she tells him about what's happening in the house and and she says am i going mad am i going crazy and he looks at her and says no something really strange is going on in your house and so she's now mm. getting accurate feedback or an outside frame of reference that that permeates this bubble of control that her husband has around her. We see this a lot in abusive controlling relationships as well. So yeah. so that is what gaslighting is, and, and that is a factor in thought reform or cult brainwashing. Another would be, and we've talked about it, loaded language or thought-terminating cliches. things th- mm-hmm. Things that are said, that are memorized, that shut down or become an impediment to critical thinking. And then you have a kind of sacred science that the group teaches. It could be a political philosophy. It could be an exercise regimen, a martial arts school. uh, It could be a a type of yoga, uh, or it could be an interpretation of the Bible as prescribed by the leader. That becomes the sacred science of the group, which means, uh, according to Lifton's writings, that you cannot question it. It is absolute. It is mm. sacred. It cannot be questioned like science would typically question any theory and subject it to scrutiny, or politics might be uh, found to be wrong, a particular political strategy, and then n- discarded and changed. I mean, or or there are loose ends in religion holy mysteries that we we can't explain that are in the Bible. So the group says, "No, we have all the answers. We can explain everything. And if you question what we teach you, you have become uh sacrilegious. You have become unscientific. You are uh, uh you are a political uh you know political running dog, you know, you're a bourgeoisie, Mm. you they dismiss you with some loaded language because the, the under, the undergirding of the sacred, sacred science is that it can never be questioned. And, and so that would be one more of these eight criteria. And then we go down the list, you know, the demand for purity, black and white thinking, Doctrine over person, subordinating yourself and everything around you to the doctrine of the group. And then also uh, the cult of confession, that no part of your life is, uh, is immune to the group's questioning and scrutiny, that you have no uh, meaningful boundaries, uh, nothing is private, and you're mm. constantly confessing. How you have fallen short what what you have done that is not according to the doctrine or the demand for purity and what you begin to see as you go through these criteria is how they strengthen and interlock with each other to Mm. like a machine run and to like a machine break people down and then the final one is the dispensing of existence which is you have no right to exist outside of the group. And so if you leave, you're bad. There's no legitimate reason to leave. Or anyone or anything outside of the group is suspect or possibly even evil. So Lifton says you take those eight criteria and you ask yourself, is the group, the organization, the leader, the person that I am following, uh, do they exhibit at least six of these eight criteria? And if they do, they they they're not gonna tell you they're running a thought reform program on you, but they are. You know, and the mm. the coercive persuasion, those that would be relevant to the writings of Edgar Schein, who uh was a mm. professor at MIT. He wrote the book coercive persuasion. And what Shine said is there are three stages, basic stages to coercive persuasion that you can identify. One, he called the unfreezing stage, which is when you break people down. And then second, Mm. the changing phase, when you, after they have been unfrozen and they are fluid, you manipulate them. And then third, the refreezing stage, or what I would call locking them down mm. again, and you do that through milieu control, control of the environment, social isolation, etc. And there, there are other books written. Zach, uh, there's Influence by Robert Cialdini, and in that book, yeah. Cialdini identifies six principles of influence uh, that that are evident in advertising and everything, including Uh, occultic indoctrination, things like um, liking. We are more apt to go along with someone we like than someone we don't like. That's why there are celebrity endorsements. We buy goods based on the fact that this celebrity or that celebrity or this influencer or that, the Kardashians use it, endorse it. And so we buy it. And so liking can be seen in a cult when they do what's called love bombing. You come into the group and everyone Mm. is very loving to you, very accepting to you, very, uh, you know, very happy that you're there. And you feel like, well, they like me and I like them because they're so nice. So that becomes a ploy to bring you in to the group. Uh, And I would point out the writings also of uh, Flo Conway and Jim Siegelman in two of their books. One is called Holy Terror, in that they drill down into fundamentalism, in particular fundamentalist Mm. Christianity. And they talk about emotional control and how groups try to control you emotionally. And they explain that. And then in another book they wrote, at the time of Jonestown in 1978, a book Snapping identifies what Conway and Siegelman, who are communications experts, call information disease. And that's the control of information. And they really go into how that works. And so when you understand that, it gives you a much more detailed and nuanced understanding of what Lifton would call milieu control. And then finally, you have Margaret Singer's writings, uh, for example, her book, Cults in Our Midst, which talks about how cults control you by controlling your behavior. So you take those elements Mm. together, and that constitutes what we call cult brainwashing.
1: Yeah, as you're talking about the the eight components of coercive persuasion and the, the freezing and the unfreezing. It's starting to make sense to me that, you know, someone who's a master manipulator and can kind of like orchestrate someone's brain or in a group of people, almost like they're the maestro conducting an orchestra. They're like working all these different techniques on someone at once. And I, I can only imagine... The mental fortitude and the awareness that you have that you have to have to combat something like that and not be caught in the web and you you mentioned gaslighting yeah you you mentioned gaslighting like i've had some experience with the the components that you've mentioned but only individually like i've as far as i know i've never been uh approached by a cult leader um possibly someone uh in a cult that you mentioned later in your book, like a multi-level marketing scheme, but I'll, I'll ask you about that in a bit. Um, but like, I, have been in a short-term relationship with someone who was, uh, attempting to gaslight me. And even that on its own, without all the other components was, throwing me for a loop. Like, I felt like my brain was splitting apart. Like, I was questioning everything that I did. I had to call my friends and be like, this happened, right? Like, I'm not hallucinating. Like, the, you know, I, we, we had these conversations, and like, I, I'm, I'm not making this up. And, and just like that component by itself, without... You know, without being in the hands of a a a master manipulator like that was making me question myself. So I I can only imagine what it would be like to 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 be under the control and be in a psychological prison of someone who can wield all those things at once.
0: Well, you know, you've just touched on something I think is really important, which is abuse of controlling relationships. And I have a chapter about an intervention I did and about that phenomenon in my book and. And when you look at someone, a woman is is typically the person who's being abused, though I have actually worked with men that also were in abusive controlling relationships with with a woman that was the dominant person. But what that, that abusive controlling partner does is the same thing as a cult leader. And you can see it as a cult of one leader and one follower. And the way it works is the same principles of thought reform and influence and communication. So that person begins to isolate you. They start encouraging you to drop friends. They become Mm. jealous when you give attention to someone else. Uh, They could be subtle or they could be uh, what I call a covert narcissist, or they could be more overt, more in your face. Uh, so you look at the uh, the criteria to determine NPD, uh, a narcissistic personality disorder, and you ask yourself, is this person I'm dating, is this person I'm married to, like this? And then the next thing you ask yourself is, am I isolated? Am I becoming isolated through this relationship? How often do I see friends? How? Uh, outwardly social, am I? Uh, Does this person uh, lose their temper with me? Uh, How bad Mm. of a temper do they have? And are they trying to get me to fear their temper which is technically called fear of disequilibrium so what that means is you feel like you're walking on eggshells and you avoid conflict and by avoiding conflict you become controlled by that so if you Mm. if you begin to recognize some of these things you're beginning to feel isolated you're not seeing old friends and family The uh, person uh, that uh, you're dating or you're married to is chipping away at your self-esteem, trying to make you doubt yourself. If they can never be wrong, if they are always right, and if you point out something that they said that was wrong or a mistake that they made, they become nasty. They maybe even lose their temper. And the message is, don't do that again. That means that they're manipulating you through that kind of behavior. And this is why, uh, and and many people that are in abusive controlling relationships, they blame themselves. I, I talk to them all the time. They will say, look, if I would just be kinder, if I do more, um, He'll be better. You know, it's my fault. Mm. It's not It's not on him. It's on me. It's my fault, women will typically say to me. And I can, or I can fix him. He, he can get better. Mm. And then I point out to them, well, what is the success of counseling with people with NPD? And does he fit the NPD profile? And if he does, how likely is it that he's going to get better if you try to fix him If a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist typically fails, uh, what does that that portend for you? Because a lot of times we see women that get battered and, you know, they're just literally beaten up by abusive controlling partners Mm. and they leave. They go into a shelter, and then they go back. And we don't understand why. And I've done many interventions to help women not go back. And basically what mm-hmm. you do is you unpack what has happened to them, like I would with a cult member, and help them to see objectively what is going on. And and then ask them, do you really feel like you deserve this? Do you want it to continue? and when they really recognize that the the partner they have is deliberately gaslighting them and and abusing them systematically knowingly they say well no no i i, I don't want to continue with that typically that will be their choice
1: mm. there's a there's a famous quote by nietzsche that goes if you gaze into the abyss the abyss also gazes into you and and i wanted to ask you if you've ever worried about spending so much time studying cults and exposing yourself to, to cult-like behavior that that makes you more susceptible in some way?
0: Well, you know, I, I think that anyone is susceptible. And I think that you if you do the type of work that I do, that you need to be distracted. You can't constantly mm-hmm. be working. You have to have hobbies. You have to have friends that have nothing to do with your work and that you can just socialize, kick back and relax. Uh and 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 you know, I enjoy traveling. I've traveled around the world. I I enjoy, you know, kicking back with a glass of wine and listening to some good jazz and just taking it easy. Yeah. I I collect movies and enjoy watching films constantly and I'm a real Netflix guy and uh Amazon Prime's not as good as Netflix, I I, I think, but pretty good. Yeah. And so I enjoy films. I enjoy other things. And I think you cannot uh, allow your entire life to be consumed by work to the exclusion of everything else. And that seeking some kind of balance, you know, keeps you healthy.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think that's a healthy way to go about any pursuit. Just like having having other things going on in your life and being exposed to works of arts, the, the opinions of your close friends and family. Just like having a barometer of what other people are doing to make sure that you're not driving yourself insane or being driven insane by by someone or something. And and obviously with the work that you do. You're much more in the world of people who are trying to uh manipulate you and and uh reform you and persuade you so i I would imagine it's even more important for you to have those moments outside of looking at cults and studying cults
0: well, not only that Zach, you know they don't just want to persuade me sometimes they want to kill me, you know I was on a hit yeah i was on a, yeah. i was on a hit list of a guru. In Wisconsin, and uh, his, you know, I was contacted by the Justice Department and told I was on a hit list, and I was under the protection
1: of the. That's uh not that's not an exciting call. Yeah, uh, the all, <laughs> I mean, it's ex- the, it, the, the it good, depending on the way you look at the it. The good <laughs>
0: news is there were a lot of other people on the list. There were about 50 people. And this uh, yeah. this particular guru thought that he was going to kill all these people or he's, he, he hoped he would or whatever. And there was a sting operation that exposed this. And I was under the protection of the Justice Department for a period of time. I've also been under the, under the protection of the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. I testified at the criminal trial of Keith Raniere. I was a fact witness. Uh, I'll never forget yeah. when they raided Nancy Salzman, who was uh, Raniere's second in command, and she's now in prison. Mm. Uh, and they raided her house. They found $500,000 in cash, and they found a filing cabinet filled with files of their perceived enemies. And one of those files had my, na- mm. had my name on it. And when I testified wow. at trial and against Ranieri, they brought the file out, they showed it to me. I think they wanted to make the point that this was a very sinister cult and that people's lives were on the line. Nancy Salzman is now in prison because of what she did to me. She uh, withheld uh, documents and evidence that should have been disclosed in discovery in the lawsuit that they ran against me for 14 years trying to wear me out wow uh, zach i've been sued five times by different destructive cults and all of those lawsuits have been dismissed
1: that seems lo- that seems low for how many deep you've done well you know <laughs> i was expecting like 50 no
0: one lawsuit lasted five almost six years another one went on for 14 oh, wow. years Uh, The others were dismissed after one was dismissed, dismissed by the cult itself after a year. And then there were a couple of others that were dismissed early on. Uh, Ranieri was a diehard. He kept finding ways to keep his lawsuit going for 14 years. Uh, So it was a long haul. And then shortly before he was arrested, uh, the lawsuit was dismissed. Uh, But Nancy Salzman Mm. is in prison because of her illegal activity during that lawsuit. Uh, And uh, I'd I'd like people that are watching or listening to this podcast to know that uh, despite Nancy's uh, declarations on a documentary called The Vow, that she somehow was a victim of Keith Raniere i've dealt with nancy i've met nancy and dealt with her victims nancy's not in my opinion not a victim that's why i found 500,000 mm-hmm. dollars in cash in her in her house
1: because yeah. she was we're not, we're not having it, Nancy. You yep. hear it here on the, the Augsora podcast. Yeah,
0: Nancy, you are not a victim. Instead, You're full of shit, Nancy. Yeah, yeah. Basically <laughs> she's full of shit. And also, uh, you know, just trying to play the victim. She, she was the first to flip on Ranieri after he was arrested. So mm. uh, that to me is not a victim. That's somebody who's very savvy, who's out to take care of, number
1: one i mean you see you see the same thing a lot with someone who's caught in in a scandal like with ftx and sam bankman freed you know what it was like the day after the raid in the bahamas his girlfriend flipped and was working with the feds so it's like obviously if if someone close to you gets caught with that you know you're going down so you have to make a game time decision in that moment and 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 the way that you you're on a hit list for cults and that cults want to or cult leaders and and they want to come after you it makes sense from their perspective because you're like the monster under the bed to them like they they can talk a big game to their followers and then they probably close the door and they're like shit i think i think rick's onto us and they're just like you know they they're they're quaking in their boots when they're behind closed doors i imagine some of them or at least the, the ones that had you on their hit list because they wouldn't want to get rid of you if you weren't shaking up their shit in some significant way.
0: I I don't think they were necessarily shaking or quaking or anything. They just thought that it was in their best interest to take me out. And uh, that's how uh, I imagine uh, uh, it. I uh, imagine them shaking. in the case of Ranieri, he just didn't know when to stop. You know, I was, I've been sued by, as I said, five times and other cult leaders or, or, cult-like leaders uh, would decide, hey, you know, I'm not going to pursue this lawsuit anymore. It's not going to work. It's not going to work because mm. he has pro bono lawyers that are working for free. And I'm not going to break him through legal fees and costs. I mean, I have been very, mm. very fortunate. I mean, uh, you know, they're, they're, the, the law firm Lowenstein Sandler, which is one of the largest law firms in New Jersey, they valiantly, bravely uh, defended me against Keith Ranieri for f- almost 14 years. Uh, the the mm. lawyer from that firm, a partner, Peter Skolnick, was the uh, leading lawyer that helped me. And then there was also a lawyer from Boston, Douglas Brooks, who was enormously helpful, and an associate at Lowenstein Sandler, Michael Norwick, who worked very hard These lawyers made it possible for me to keep working and and to not be crushed by the legal burden. It's it's estimated that if I had paid for my legal help during the 14 years that Ranieri sued me, it would have cost me personally two million dollars. Raneri spent in excess of 5 million dollars litigating against me alone. He spent millions more litigating against other people he wanted to harass. Jesus. Uh one of his victims, Tony Natale, who who was his girlfriend at one time, they lived together. She dumped him. Uh for that, mm. he harassed her and 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 came after her with his lawyers and whatever. For twenty years until he was until wow. he was arrested so so people were harassed, and I was very fortunate i've i've always really uh have to say been fortunate that when cults sued me, I was able to find pro bono legal help and and basically not pay the onerous costs of the litigation uh because mm-hmm. when these cults sue you, for example, Scientology is very litigious. Their purpose is to break you through legal fees and costs, to get you to shut up or 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 fold up because of that kind of intimidation. And, and that's mm. why I have enormous respect for people like Leah Remini and Mike Rinder, who were Scientologists, who came out and, you know, they did that show Scientology in the Aftermath for A&E, which won two Emmys. And mm-hmm. that took cojones to go after Scientology mm-hmm. because I've been harassed by Scientology and stalked by them. And I know what it's like to be under under that uh under that kind of pressure. And Leah Remini and Mike Rinder, mm-hmm. they just are amazing what they've been able to uh do, what they've been able to uh, accomplish by coming out and exposing Scientology the way they have.
1: Yeah. And, and from what I understand, they have a gigantic bankroll. They, they own so much real estate. So it's like they could sue you for 10 lifetimes if they really wanted yeah. to.
0: Yeah, Zach, Scientology, when L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, his estate was valued at $600 million. Today, it's it's commonly known that Scientology is worth more than three billion dollars. One one person claimed that they had.
1: It's a big endowment. One
0: person claimed that they had like a billion in cash alone. So we're talking about a very rich organization, very powerful, Uh, but. Uh, good news, because of people like Leah Remini and Mike Rinder and many other former Scientologists, the church is shrinking. So despite all their claims that mm-hmm. they have millions of members, I I think really accurately, they may have as few as yeah. uh, 20, 25,000. So even though the wow. current leader, David Miskevige, who's like dictator for life, apparently, of Scientology, uh, even though he managed to get them tax-exempt status and... He, he's managed to grow their wealth and their property portfolio. The church itself is shrinking. And uh, it's been mm. shrinking, I think, ever since Hubbard died.
1: Mm. I want to ask you more about Scientology. I'm just going to take a quick bathroom break and then I'll be right back. So, yeah, we're, we're also uh, learning cult language that's entered the lexicon you know we've got gaslighting and drinking the kool-aid so it's also a a language lesson as well and a bunch of other terms um so i I wanted to ask you about scientology and specifically a deprogramming experience you had because i was i was reading that you uh and you also talk about this at length in your book as well that that you deprogrammed a guy who's in Scientology for nearly thirty years, and so I, I wanted to ask you like how the hell do you turn the tables on someone that's in that deep? Because when you talk about deprogramming, like I'm imagining someone that was in it for like a few months, maybe like five years, something like that, but to be in a program like that's literally a lifetime wow. with an ideology. Like how did you? end up getting to that guy like what was the process with well him?
0: zach first of all the most important ingredient in that intervention was his wife his children and his sister they were there throughout the mm. intervention and that's how an intervention works you've got you've got family best friends whoever has has credibility with that individual whoever has emotional weight with that person you want them in the room because uh, they're only going to cooperate based on that feeling that they have for those people as opposed to me because for they owe me nothing. They owe their family, the people they love, time, uh, understanding, and, and mm. so on. So first of all, we had uh, his two children there, his wife there, his sister there, and they were incredibly persuasive. And then what happens in an intervention is you go through basically four blocks, as I point out in my book, which is number one, you define what is a destructive cult and you go through that definition Mm -hmm. and you talk about how that may or may not relate to their group ultimately. Uh, and you also talk about groups that they would acknowledge are cults. You might ask them, do, do you think there are cults? Are, is there such a thing? And they say, yeah. And then you say, well, what cults have you heard about? And they give you a few. And then you begin to unpack that definition vis-a-vis that particular group or groups that they've identified. And then ultimately, you're going to swing it around and talk about their group and how the this definition fits their group. Second, you're going to talk about uh, cult brainwashing, coercive persuasion, thought reform, influence techniques to to get them to understand how that works so they can see it. And then you're you're going to uh, apply that ultimately, again, to cults they know about, and then ultimately to their own group. Then the third block is you're going to ask them, are there things that... You don't know about your group that you should know that have been kept from you, that that if you, mm-hmm. if you knew them, it might affect your decision making. And in the case of Scientology, they keep a lot of secrets from their uh, participants, from people that they are putting through auditing, training, coursework they don't disclose what's behind the curtain, which are some pretty pretty mm. bizarre beliefs about space aliens and whatnot. And the human, yeah, I've, yeah, I've heard. The human condition being linked to a, a, essentially ghosts of space aliens roaming the Earth. Well, you know, if you told that to somebody when they first signed up for Scientology, they'd say, you guys are nuts, and they'd leave. So they keep that as yeah. a secret. So what the third block of things to discuss is what has the group kept from you? What has the group not disclosed to you that you should know in order to be more informed, to make a more informed decision about continuing? And then finally, the fourth block, why are your family here? What is it that they're worried about? Mm -hmm. Why are your children worried about you? Why is your wife worried about you? Why is everyone? so distressed and and upset. And then, of course, people in the family in the room are saying, well, this is what I am concerned about and I'm concerned about this. And they're, they're basically opening up and explaining their concern to the person. And so ultimately, you go through those four things. Now, depending on how deep somebody is, that can take a really long time or not so long. Mm. A a typical intervention will run three to four days. The intervention that you're talking about with the Scientologist, I think it ran a week. And and wow.
1: Is this like eight hours a day, like just straight through pretty much? I
0: would say six to eight. There are breaks. Uh, you're, You're taking breaks whenever they want. You know, they might say, look, you know, I feel kind of overloaded right now. I need to take a break or let's break for lunch. And and then at the end of the day, they're resting from the end of one day to the beginning in the next morning. And the family, mm. I ask families, please don't go on and on about what we discussed because they're probably exhausted. And wait until tomorrow. Mm. And if they have questions, they can take notes and and we'll go over it the next day. And so in in that case, the Scientology case, twenty seven years. Of involvement from the age of 22 to 49, uh, this man was—that uh, was his life. Those were all of his relationships, all of his friends, everybody other than—and this was crucial—his wife and his two kids. Who, though they did some, co- mm. they did some coursework, they dabbled, but they never really bought in to Scientology and went in all the way. And so they—they they did it to keep him happy and then what what was the precipitating event that caused them to be so concerned to stage an intervention after so many years was he was going to become a Org member and a Sea Org member that's mm. sea organization l ron hubbard was in the navy they called him the commodore and he kind of created his own little i don't know navy or whatever and They would wear blue uh, at one time. Some of them still do. So there are thousands of Scientologists who are full-time. They live in Scientology Mm. housing. They work for Scientology. They eat, sleep, breathe. Everything is Scientology. They don't make much money. As far as I know, they don't have a very good benefits package. And they basically are almost like slave labor. He was going to become a Sea Org member. And he had skills mm. as an art restorer that they wanted to use. So uh, he was going to become a Sea Org member. He told his family, I'm not going to be able to see you that much anymore. I'm going to be living in Scientology housing. He told his wife, we'll have to get a divorce. Uh, and so
1: that, mm. that... He told his wife that. You know, he was like, we need a divorce. Yeah. Was that coming from the, the church, I'm assuming? Yeah. Like they wanted to get rid of her they wanted because she wasn't a full-in member she
0: wasn't going to support his decision uh she wasn't going to mm. become Sea c-org member he wasn't going to live with her anymore and so divorce her yeah you know tom cruise has been divorced three times i strongly suspect yeah. that each of those divorces directly related to scientology for example mimi rogers left scientology uh subsequent to her parents leaving Who raised her in scientology she was the one who got tom cruise into scientology in the first place and then she left Hmm. surprise divorce time then second wife nicole kidman she wasn't that that hot for scientology her father uh was a psychologist uh which is considered evil by scientology if you're a psychiatrist psychologist Mental health professional, you're the bad guys to Scientology. So she ended up in in divorce with Tom Cruise, and, yeah. her, and her children, by the way, ended up deeply involved in Scientology, and she has a very tenuous relationship with them, according to many reports. And then finally, we have Katie Holmes, who was uh, mm. afraid of Scientology, and she was afraid of what it was going to do to her daughter, Suri, Cruz. And so she waited until Tom Cruise was filming on location in Iceland, and then she divorced him. She blindsided him very much the way he blindsided Nicole Kidman. And so she Mm -hmm. she ended up with basically primary custody. He has visitation. She has all the decision making over her daughter's life. And I believe the reason that Tom Cruise doesn't visit with Surrey his daughter very much, according to many reports, is that she is perceived as a potential trouble source who is near too near a suppressive person, which I would say is katie holmes so uh hmm. so that is typically that can be the reason for divorce when mike rinder who who has done you know all this work with leah remini and they have, the, they have the podcast Fair Game and they had the A&E show, you know, Scientology in the Aftermath. When he left, his whole family completely cut him off. And that is called uh, the po- mm. policy of disconnection in Scientology. You disconnect from a suppressive person. And so his wife left him, his children disowned him, and they have spoken against him. It, it's heartbreaking. I mean, uh, for Mike Rinder to go through that and still manage to stand up against Scientology despite all of that, that takes a very brave individual. And Leah Remini Mm -hmm. managed to get her family out with her. But, you know, that wasn't easy, I'm sure. So in the case of this man who was in Scientology for 27 years, we went through a week of the intervention with his family, his sister, his, his wife, his yeah. kids. I can remember his kids on their knees in front of him at, at, at his knees crying, saying, dad, we love you, don't go into Sea Org. We, we can't bear it, When when will we see you? What will happen to us? So,
1: even his kids could see from the outside like how their own father was being manipulated,
0: yes, yeah, they really did, and he was just a really nice person, very, very smart, very intelligent uh very uh, uh I don't know how to put it, just incredibly uh articulate about the world of art and art restoration mm. and uh He eventually would go to Italy the first year after he left Scientology. And he called me and said, Rick, it's incredible. I'm seeing the Sistine Chapel. I'm seeing uh, the David in Florence. I'm seeing all these wonderful things that i wanted to see all my life, but I never could because I was spending all my money on Scientology and I was never doing what I really wanted because I felt like I was going to clear the planet I was going to save the world because that's what they told me. That's what I believed. And now I am I am seeing the world for the first time and I'm seeing all this great art and I'm really happy. But uh, the-
1: that has to be the most fulfilling. That has to be the most fulfilling feeling in the world for you to, to deprogram someone, see them leave. And then for them to call you like that and say, you know, I, I can't explain how good it feels for me to be free and for me to be moving around in the world, not dependent on some cult ideology.
0: Yeah, You know, some of uh, the people that I deprogrammed over the years, they stay in touch with me and occasionally they'll they'll drop me a line. There was one woman that I worked with many years ago that I recently heard from her parents and I heard from her previously about, oh, I would say around. Last time I heard from her was probably about 12 years ago, but I heard from her parents just recently in the last year. She was in a terrible group called the General Assembly. Mm. It was led by this uh, self-proclaimed prophet, Lacey Hawkins, and Hawkins would encourage people to have... uh, a tubal women to have a tubal legation and cauterization and men to get a vasectomy. He wanted his people sterilized. And many of the women that were sterilized could never have children. And this family retained me to do an intervention with their daughter uh, during, uh, I think it would, it would have been around 1989, 1990. She was hmm. on the brink of being sterilized, and the intervention brought her out of the group. And uh, that was a very extreme intervention. That was an involuntary deprogramming. I didn't do many of those. I stopped uh, at, at 1990.
1: It, yeah, that sounds almost like an exorcism. It
0: was. <laughs> I mean, what, the woman yeah. that I dealt with, she, 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 I could not believe that she was as well educated as she. She was. She would go on to get a PhD and become a tenured professor at a major university. In fact, a leading uh department. So the woman the woman is brilliant. She's a brilliant woman. But what really touched me was uh, I think it was about 2010, I got a letter from her, and it enclosed in the letter was a picture of her daughter, and she said. I just wow. want to thank you for what you did, for how you helped me, and I have a beautiful daughter. And and of course, she would have been sterilized if she had stayed in the group. And I think that many people who are uh, nasty or negative about deprogramming, and in particular, the old involuntary deprogrammings that took place, uh, mostly back in the 70s and 80s, and the last happening around 1990, 91... Uh, I think they don't realize how desperate the families were and what the consequences were if they failed. And in this particular family's life, it was a a daughter, her life, her career, but also her ability to have a family of her own. And she did have a daughter. Mm -hmm. She may have had other children after that, but I'm aware of of the daughter. And I was just so happy for her. And her parents wrote me not long ago. And they said that she was doing very well. They explained to me about her academic career and how happy they were with her and how proud they were of her. And so uh, there have been people that I've worked with that were uh, in terrible groups and they went on to become very successful in life, uh, lawyers, doctors, professors, and and entrepreneurs. And so uh, what, mm. in a sense... Uh, I, I yeah I do feel very very good about that I feel good about that, though I tend like many people to dwell on the failures to to think about well what could I have done to have yeah. helped that person because probably about twenty five percent twenty five to thirty percent of the interventions I do fail and when they fail mm-hmm. the person typically will leave in the first day and not come back and they go back to the group and they may stay there for many many years some of them come out later and will will tell their parents uh in some situations your perseverance the intervention that you did the information that i became aware of for the time i was there that was part of the consideration that helped me mm. to leave eventually uh and so so but the i think when you do intervention work like like I have, that you do tend to look at the failures and think about them and, and you know, kind of feel sad about those failures.
1: Well, when you think about if your failure rate is 25%, that means your success rate is about 75%. So that's 400 out of over 500 cases, at least. And if you extrapolate that out to not just the individuals that walked away from the cult, but then their family members, their partners, their friends, that extrapolates into literally thousands of people that you've had a positive impact on their life. So, the, I mean, that's that's incredible. Like the, the individual stories uh, are obviously great at, you know, telling what goes on and how people can get drawn into that and how you deprogram people. But when you take a step back and you just think about the numbers like that, that's de- affecting that many people is more than most people can say that they'll do in 10 lifetimes. Well,
0: and then my, my, my work, I think with, uh, the courts, uh, in particular child custody cases, I, I think that really is, uh, very rewarding for me. I did a case very recently uh it was a man who contacted me in from texas and he had fathered a child Mm. with his partner and though they didn't live together he supported the mother supported the child and then found out that she had taken his his baby girl into a cult compound called the house of yahweh near abilene texas this is a terrible Mm. cult where people have died from medical neglect Uh, people have been abused, sexually abused, physically, uh, labor violations, welfare fraud. I mean, it's a stew. It's a very, very Hmm. bad and toxic stew. And he called me, he was desperate to get his child out of that compound. And I testified in court and I was very happy that the judge took the child away from the mother and gave sole custody, uh, to the father. And of course, the mother was very sad, but she was devoted to this cult and would have subjected the child to being raised in this cult compound. And and I've yeah. met uh, adults who were raised in that compound uh, as children. It's a horrible place for a child. So my, my work in child custody cases over the years, I started testifying in uh, 1991. So I've been doing that Mm. work for a long time. I've been qualified in 11 states, including United States federal court. And every time that I'm successful in helping to protect a child from being raised in a cult, that that's a that's a really good day for me.
1: Yeah, that's that's amazing. So uh, for me, like I have these crazy goals for podcasting in my own career that don't make sense. Like I, I want to record a podcast in space I'll, somehow, uh, for your, for your own career in cult deprogramming, cult expertise, like helping so many people's lives through what you do. Do you have like just crazy goals where you're like, I want to deprogram Tom Cruise. <laughs> no. Like, do you ever, like, are you ever like, I'm like, I'm going to find a way in. Cause like, Arguably, if you deprogram Tom Cruise, that'd probably be the nail in the coffin for Scientology. Like he's more like I only heard of David Miscavige because I looked into Scientology, but I heard of Scientology because of Tom Cruise. Like, do you ever think about what it would take to deprogram a guy like that? Wow.
0: I don't know. I mean, you know, Tom Cruise is a fascinating person because, you know, he's probably the biggest movie star in the world. And as an actor, he's, he's a extremely uh, talented actor. I mean, he's been nominated for Oscars. He won Golden Globes, you know, any, anybody who's seen his films knows that he, he's really formidable. And then, and he's then, amazing.
1: And, I, I, I admire yeah, the but, shit out but, of him. Like having the,
0: said that, Zach, then you think to yourself, well, what? kind of a situation could it be that this individual that is so so talented and so smart because he's very smart in business as well and in organizing stunts and what have you and he's a pilot and everything uh, what kind of a compartmentalized life does this guy have that he can do that and yet still be a true believer in Scientology because i mm. believe that if Tom Cruise were were in a totally honest, forthright interview, and you said to him, Do you know what the incident is? Uh when you reached operating thetan level three, did they tell you about Zenu, the galactic overlord, and and the body thetans that are floating around Earth, and that they explain your negative reactive mind and 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 Scientology is the way of eliminating or neutralizing body thetans. Uh, do you believe that? If he were being really honest, he would say, absolutely, I believe it. I totally believe it. You yeah, think so? I believe it. And, and if you said to him, who do you think is the greatest human being on the planet today? He'd probably say David Miscavige, because he is the the, the chairman of the board of Scientology and Scientology alone has the technology to clear the planet of body thetans and and free everyone from mm. the negative reactive mind. And therefore, he's my hero. He's my guy. And then when you think that he sacrificed three marriages, probably to, at the altar of Scientology, and that he doesn't see his his only biological child, Surrey Cruz, because very likely he thinks she's a PTS, and that's according to Scientology, and that his two adopted children, he's educated them through Scientology, they're embedded in Scientology, and he's estranged them from their mother, according to multiple reports, mm. uh, because of his belief in Scientology. the The amount of emotional equity that all of that represents is staggering. I mean, how does a guy who's done all of that step back and say, yeah, you know, I did it for nothing. I did it. I did it for (laughs) nothing. It was a scam. L. Ron Hubbard was a fraud, the founder of Scientology. And David Miscavige is some kind of psychopath. I mean, how does somebody say I did everything not only for nothing, I did it all of that stuff, I did it for an organization that can be seen as very negative, even evil.
1: Would you, so the other guy that you deprogrammed that was in it for 30 years, if you asked him who's the most important person in the world, do you believe in the this, the in the level three? Would he say yes at the oh, beginning ab, abso- of the deprogramming? Ab,
0: well, no. Answer, yes and no. He would say that chairman of the board, David Miscavige, certainly the most important person in the world because he is the the uh the, yeah. the 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 holder of the technology the purveyor the chairman of the board who's managing this incredible technology that no one else has and that is so pivotal to clearing the planet and saving the world. As far as OT3, this guy had just barely made clear, which is something a lot Mm. of people don't understand about Scientology. You can spend a lot of money. Some people have said $400,000 just to reach OT3, operating Thetan level three. You can Mm. spend a small fortune just reaching clear and so you're not going to learn about xenu and body thetans until ot3 and this is why when people look at scientology and they hear about xenu and everything i i i I remember one time i i was i was on the o'reilly factor talking about scientology because bill o'reilly was concerned about tom Cruise trying to to recruit people on the Paramount lot. And he felt like it was wrong for celebrities to try to uh, convince people to join their religion just because they were working with them and had power over them. And and when he, when he brought mm-hmm. me onto the set at Fox, he looked at me and he said, don't talk about Xenu. I don't want to talk about Xenu. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. okay, we're not going to talk yeah. about Xenu. And he said, what I'm concerned with is not how weird their beliefs are or are not my concern is is tom cruise doing something unethical by subjecting the people that are on the crew the you know the production people on the paramount lot to his religion is that reasonable he's a movie star he's the star of the movie yeah. and he's doing this to these people and
1: yeah there's the power yeah, dynamic yeah. like he, and so so i yeah.
0: i talked about that but when when you talk about this guy that was in Scientology for 27 years, he had not made it to OT3. So many people that mm-hmm. you might meet and say, are you a Scientologist? They'll say, yeah, I am. But then if you say to them, do you, Xenu, what do you think about Xenu? They go, I don't even know what you're talking about. Because they haven't reached OT3. Really? You know, there, there's a story about Tom Cruise. I don't know if it's true. But it's been repeated many times that when he finally was told the the explained about the incident OT3, that he was kind of uh, shell shocked, you know, just taken aback, that he was a little out of it for a while. I don't know if that's true, but I could understand that uh, having been in Scientology for many years and then thinking, this is it. This is the core belief yeah. of Scientology. This is what I bought into. But then even at that point, he just, you know, powered on. And I think Tom Cruise is now either an OT7 or an OTA. So he's, he's well, gone you, all the way.
1: If there was a perfect universal alignment and you could take him back to that feeling of being shell-shocked, like somehow, you know, someone close to him, links up with you for an intervention you gain his trust somehow maybe he's like all right before we do this you have to come on a crazy stunt like let's do a halo jump first so i can see what you're made of and you go on a stunt with tom cruise and then you're in a you're in a room with him after and you're kind of like processing and you're talking to him and you like get him to think about like do you remember that day when you were uh you know allegedly the story that happened where he just had this feeling of like are you kidding me like this is it after all these years like if you could make him sit in that for a little bit do you think there's a way where you hypothetically could get him to start to unravel like almost like a week long intervention like you did with the other guy or do you think w- just because he has so much emotional investment in it he's 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 gone
0: i, I have i would think that tom cruise would take a month A month. And it would be a very hard, hard uh, pull. And it would be very difficult. And I would think that the only thing that could get him to, to even consider sitting through that would be maybe if he fell madly in love with some woman, like he did with Penelope Cruz. It seems to me. Mm. And at that point, Penelope Cruz decides to stage an intervention. And uh, because he loves her, she says, well, if you love me, if you care about me, will you just listen? Would you be willing to just listen? Because if Scientology really does have all the answers, and if it is the truth, then nothing this guy could say or nothing I can say or anybody could say could dissuade you. But would you be willing, because you love me, to just give the time out to listen? And, and I would think the only thing that could yeah. motivate him was if he was head over heels in love and the woman said, look, you know, I I love you, but I I do not like Scientology. And it's a part of you that I'm having a problem yeah. with. And are you willing to talk it through? And And my thinking is like this. This would be a way I would... Sell it to somebody like Tom Cruise, or that someone could sell it to him. Maybe, is they would say, "Look, you're an OT seven, OT eight. You know everything. You know David Miscavige personally. You you've you've been to to Clearwater, to the Superpower. You know." Place you 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 know everything. You've been a Scientologist since you were a young guy, and you're sixty. So you've been all in for what almost like you know maybe forty years. So this guy he's he's he doesn't have your knowledge of Scientology. He has some knowledge, and I'm here, and we have some yeah. other people here. And would you be willing to talk this through with me in the in an effort to just? give me, give this guy equal time. You'll explain to me why Scientology is for me and why I should like it. And he'll explain why he thinks it's a problem. And let's see where we end up. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to do that? And I think the only way Tom Cruise would be willing to do that is if he were head over heels in love with uh, a woman and he just thought he would die without her and that he would be willing not to leave, but just to listen, with the idea in his mind that there's nothing that they could possibly say that would that would dissuade yeah. me from being fully committed to Scientology.
1: Yeah, I mean, if he did, it, that would be. I mean, that would be absolutely amazing. And you know, I, I tend to be more optimistic, so I think there's always a chance. And Tom Tom Cruise is such a good. Like, he's so good at what he does. Like, I've heard all the things behind the scenes where he will obsess over a oh, stunt yeah. for a year, like a year straight. He'll just learn to, to halo jump or hold his breath underwater for five minutes. And, like, they'll plan the movie. They'll plan Mission Impossible around the stunt. Like, he'll come in and say, I'm doing this stunt. I'm going to fly a helicopter. I'm going to be in a plane. Like, we need to create the movie around this. And he just has, like, this insane discipline about making movies so maybe if his identity of actor is a slightly above his identity of scientologist maybe during the deprogramming he'll be like all right maybe scientology is bullshit like let's make a movie about this deprogramming though and he just turns to he's like you can get any you can get anyone to play you in this movie you want like i'll play me and then we'll have uh we'll turn this well, into that a would movie be somehow a,
0: that could be potentially one of his greatest hits. Uh, And if you watch him in uh, Magnolia, when he plays really kind of a cult leader, he plays this seminar guru that uh, is expounding a philosophy about how to get women, how Mm. to get women. And he is Mm. incredible in this role. So he is capable of playing a cult leader. That's for sure. And, uh, that's why he was nominated for best supporting actor for that part. Yeah. And, and he, on the flip side, when he did, uh, born on the fourth, he played, you know, kind of a victim of indoctrination who broke through the indoctrination mm. to reclaim his sense of individuality, his sense of his life. And yeah. he became a very angry, uh, you know, uh, protester activist because of the fact that, you know, he lost the use of his legs in Mm. Vietnam. And it was a very incredible movie that that he also was nominated for. But uh, Mm. one thing about Tom Cruise I will tell you is that he got smart after uh, War of the Worlds. Because if you you dial back to War of the Worlds, he came out gangbusters during the... uh, a cycle of doing interviews and promoting the movie, which was directed by Steven Spielberg uh, to, you know, it was supposed to be a blockbuster. It, it was certainly a good mm-hmm. movie. It was popular. It, it I, I think it made money, but it wasn't this awesome blockbuster like ET, like mm. ET that Spielberg directed. Instead, it was less than that. And I think that maybe Spielberg and others blame Tom Cruise Uh, certainly, uh, people at, at Paramount and Viacom were not happy with him. So when he went out to promote the movie, instead of promoting the movie, as you may recall, he talked a lot about Scientology. He got an argument, he got into a famous argument with Matt Lauer about, uh, the use of, uh, of Ritalin or, or antidepressants. And he just went, you know, he just went kind of berserk. And the, the end result yeah. was he got bad press. The movie didn't get all of the juice that it should have gotten from his interviews, which I think was resented by people attached to the film. And then he went through a kind mm-hmm. of, I wouldn't call it a downward spiral, but he went through kind of a not so good period. And and, and then what yeah. you notice now with, uh you know, uh with uh, Top Gun Maverick, And with uh, Mission Impossible and with any interviews that Tom Cruise does, he's back to the old formula, which is, I don't talk about Scientology. I mean, he used to have a publicist that is no longer uh, with him. And uh, she would tell people that interviewed Tom Cruise, uh, listen, if you ask him one question about Scientology, the interview is over. He's not going to talk about Scientology in the interview. And and he's back to that formula. So you might be right. Maybe he looks at his acting career and and the films that he works on as taking precedence over Scientology, because he certainly isn't promoting Scientology when he does promotion for his movies now.
1: Mm. Yeah. So speaking of public figures that are involved with with cults and and cult activity, I I wanted to ask you about Andrew Tate because he, I'm sure you've uh, had people reach out to you about Andrew Tate, but just for people who aren't familiar, um, he's the founder of Hustlers University, which I think now is called the Real World. He rebranded it, which it's it's like a shady wealth building scheme. He has over 100,000 students signed up for it. He makes millions of dollars a month he was the number one google search at one point last year in the world like above kim kardashian and donald trump uh he's a world champion kickboxer like a four time world champion kickboxer and like he he's been branded as uh like like hustler's university the real world has been branded as a cult by youtube investigators like there's this guy Coffeezilla who investigates fraudsters schemesters and, and he's called what andrew tate is doing a cult and tate was also just arrested for charges of rape and human trafficking where he allegedly uh on top of hustlers university he allegedly used the lover boy method to manipulate women into creating porn for his business so like cam girls things like that and so he Allegedly, he tricked them into thinking they're entering a loving relationship and in return, they'd, they'd work uh, as cam girls for him. So I wanted to ask you a, a twofold question. Do you have any thoughts on Andrew Tate in terms of how it pertains to to your field? And if the allegations are true, would that make Tate? by definition, a cult leader. Well,
0: I think that I've been following the Andrew Tate story and what's going on. And we're going to see in the in the criminal trial and what we what we want to watch for is the same pattern that we saw saw in the R. Kelly trial, which, uh, you know, R. Kelly Mm. now is in prison for basically running a cult and sexually abusing and exploiting uh, women and girls uh, through through his you know group that he created, uh, basically these women were like slaves to him. So what we want to see mm. in the trial that is going to come with, for Andrew Tate is it do, does he socially isolate the women? To what extent does he socially I- isolate them? Does he alienate them from their family, from their friends? Uh, is there evidence of thought reform? If we look through the characteristics of thought reform, can the women uh, give us examples of when uh, Tate used those uh, mechanisms to control and manipulate them? Did he gaslight them? Mm. Did he use mystical manipulation? Uh, did he put them through a breaking period where he broke them down and then changed them? And then did he did he reinforce them by isolating them within a milieu that he constantly controlled? So if if that kind of testimony comes out in the coming uh, court process, then yeah, maybe Andrew, Andrew Tate is a cult leader. Uh, certainly he's a charismatic personality. He fits the profile of a very seductive, very charismatic leader. And certainly he has become iconic to his following and they... I wouldn't go so far as to say they worship him, but in the same sense that uh, many women want to be like one of the Kardashians, uh, many men following uh, Tate want to be like him. So to yeah. what extent he actually can be proven to have employed thought reform and course of persuasion to gain undue influence over the women or over his following and then either uh, exploit his following based on that undue influence or harm the women based on his control. That will be the evidence that he is a cult leader.
1: Yeah, and it seems like there's this extra layer of just like uh, he he's, he's entered the – Obviously, he's entered the mainstream because he's, he's the number one Google search and, and, you know, everyone knows about him. But there's also this other element where he's super entertaining as a personality. I've listened to multiple podcasts with him. And, and while he says a lot of things that I, I do not agree with and I also don't uh, know where his line is of 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 this crafted persona and what he actually believes because I do think regardless of what the allegations are he does have like this very calculated persona that can be really funny at times and he goes on uh, he's been on one of my favorite comedy podcasts your mom's house with Tom Segura and Christina P so like if he ends up fitting the definition of a cult leader as the investigation goes on like I, I can't think of anyone else who's sort of entered the the mainstream entertainment sphere as like a likable character guest that's just been so open about talking about things. I mean, maybe in the past when it was more like Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, things like that, but in terms of like the Rogan sphere of podcasting and comedy, he's been pretty uh like pretty. Uh, saturated in that and pretty open to talking about things. So it'd be wild if he was also just leading this double life of doing the things like these awful things that he's accused of. Well,
0: you know, he may be innocent and he or he may be guilty of certain things, but not be a cult leader. For example, there are many people that would like to uh, describe Donald Trump as a cult leader. And and and, you know, they're often saying, oh, the Republican Party is a cult and, and reciprocally, uh, there are Republicans who say the woke movement is a cult. So so let's just unpack that and say that they're both wrong, that the woke movement does not yeah. have an absolute totalitarian leader that is an object of worship that is the defining element and driving force of the woke movement. And Donald Trump did not, did not brainwash yeah. the people that voted for him. They voted for him because they agree with his message. And as long as his message is uh, in agreement with them, they will support him. For example, when he -hmm. he came to Alabama for a rally and uh, he started talking about COVID and he said, aren't you just excited about the vaccine? And I got my vaccine shot and I got my booster and and Bill O'Reilly yeah. is i think with him on another uh stint uh, in in Texas and what do you think happened they booed him uh cult yeah. cult, cult members don't yeah. boo cult leaders doesn't happen i mean they don't boo uh they either cheer they clap or they're confused maybe until they're told what to think and they're told that this is the way you should you should agree and get the booster but the 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 evidence is that these people that support Donald Trump, they are not brainwashed. He is not an absolute totalitarian leader. There are now evangelical Christians who are expressing doubts about supporting him in the next election cycle, and they're they're looking at the governor of Florida, and they're thinking they might support mm-hmm. him instead. That's not how cult leaders, the cult members act. Cult yeah. members are diehards. They keep following the leader, even when the leader is criticized and the leader is impugned, there's an expose they keep following. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't have that kind of a following. And I think it's a bit... Uh, it, it, it's really, uh, in my view, a disservice to cult members to try to label a political leader or political movement as a cult that is not a cult because you disagree with it. Uh, people people mm-hmm. are not brainwashed because they don't agree with you. What, what they... What they think is what they think. You may think they're crazy. You may think that their beliefs are wrong, but that doesn't mean that they're cult members and that they're brainwashed, whether they're in the woke movement or Bernie Sanders uh, supporters, Bernie bros, or whether they're MAGA Trump supporters. And I think we need to diffuse that use of the word cult as an invective to attack people we don't agree with.
1: Yeah, and it's... It's an ongoing investigation with Andrew Tate as well. Like, we'll we'll see what happens. It just makes me think, like, because so many of the things that we've talked about with co-leaders are the opposite of someone who's entertaining. Because for you to entertain and for you, for, for someone to want to consume your content, you have to be relatable in some sense like like often that comes with self-deprecation or humor or both or just like being able to communicate uh on a wide scale
0: Tate uh, often make jokes uh that are (laughs) self-deprecating
1: kind of like he he oh he's also a kickboxer he he beat the shit out of people for a living so like yeah. fighters tend to have big egos like you're 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 you know you're knocking people out like you feel like you're a god when you're in the ring and if you're a four- time world champion you kind of carry that with you so I don't necessarily think that's abnormal that he doesn't have a lot of self-deprecating humor but i I've, I've seen him dabble in it at times but he also like has a very good sense of like social interaction and like uh like relating to people in a way that's not weird cuz like a lot of the things we've talked about like they they there's something off and like you need people in an isolated environment in order for the things to work on them but like when he's talking on a podcast it's hard to imagine him doing some of the activity uh, that could be considered cult-like. But again, like, who knows? Maybe he's just like a master manipulator. He has a compartmentalized personality, like a persona versus what he's doing behind closed doors. So so, so who knows? Like, it, it's As still ongoing. As the evidence
0: is presented in court and reported, and yeah. then you, you read the court transcript or you read quotes from the transcript, and then you start using those criteria, Lifton's eight criteria... Uh, The cult formation, three core characteristics, uh, the coercive persuasion, breaking, changing, uh, locking in. And if that fits, uh, then he could be a cult leader. If that if that doesn't fit and and you can see that it just isn't making sense, then he's he he may have committed crimes Mm -hmm. But he is not a cult leader. I think in the case of R. Kelly, uh, there there was more than enough evidence provided in court to to yeah. you know really see him as a cult leader. And uh but but yeah. Andrew Andrew Tate, I don't know. We're we're gonna have to wait until there's more more provided to us. But let let me just say this, Zach, that there are some cult leaders who present in very unconventional ways. For example, Keith Ranieri, uh, when I first uh, heard about him and I talked to people that worked with him, knew him, they would say it was very disarming to meet him because uh, you thought you were going to meet this brainiac, this brilliant, brilliant person responsible for the seminar, uh, you know, modules and and this philosophy that is called rational inquiry. And Ranieri in person, and I've met him, would be at times very quiet, very soft-spoken, kind of contemplative. And he would come mm-hmm. across as almost a really introverted, shy, unassuming. And that was the antithesis of what you would expect a cult a cult leader to be, yeah. and so he would disarm you in that way. Now, the way that you you find out what he's really all about is: I was in this uh, negotiation with him, this uh, court ordered mediation with the lawyers and everyone, and we're sitting at a table together, and uh, and and I start laying out what could be a settlement, you know, starting to talk about it uh what would he agree to uh, to end the lawsuit because i had i had uh two i had actually excuse me i had five co-defendants and so i wanted it mm. to end for them they wanted it to end uh there there's an old saying if you if you uh if you mud wrestle with a pig uh you know you get dirty and the pig has fun and i've often used that analogy nah in regards to suing me that that's just, I, I regard that as just part of my work. Part of what I have to deal with is to be in a lawsuit and I make it into kind of a mud wrestling match, if you will. But my (laughs) co-defendants, that was not their life. That was not their work and they wanted out. So I talked to Ranieri and I started laying things out. And at one point he, he looks at me and he says, you don't understand. And then he starts going into to pedantically explaining to me the principles of rational inquiry. And I looked at him and said, Mm. I don't care what you believe. I'm not interested. I am here because the judge ordered me to be here. I have to be here. I'm here to try to end this litigation for for my co-defendants. And all their lawyers are there. It must have been, I don't know how many lawyers in the room. And they're all nodding, like, "Yeah, that's why we're here." And yeah. so, so Ranieri then yeah. goes again and interrupts me and says, "Oh, you know, you know, you don't understand. You need to understand. This is what you need to understand." And I finally just kind of—I didn't lose it, but I got pretty in his face—and I said, "Look, I don't care what you believe, because here's what I think. I think you're a cult leader. I think you're a con man." And I think you work people for your own benefit. And that's why I'm here. And so you can believe whatever the heck you want to believe. I don't care because I'm just here to settle the lawsuit. But as far as I'm concerned, you're a cult leader and you're a bad guy and you hurt people. He Mm. lost it in that confrontation. His face got red and uh, he started, uh, you know, just like uh, shake a little bit and the mask kind of dropped.
1: Confronted with well, his own bullshit, yeah. someone
0: that was not compliant, that was yeah. that was really laying it on him, and he and so my my final analysis again of, of of Andrew Tate is when he has that kind of a confrontation with someone who's adversarial, and they kind of call him out on whatever his shit is mm-hmm. or is perceived to be. What is his response? Does he laugh it off? Does he act like, oh, you know, you're crazy. You know, what are you talking about? Uh, I'll talk about this and that and the other because it's so obvious that you're full of shit. I mean, if yeah. he if he reacts that way, that would be the not cult leader way to react. But on the other hand, yeah. if he acts, reacts like Ranieri did, and starts getting really upset and really angry because you're calling him out and you're exposing what he's really about. That is uh, really the cult leader dropping the mask. And, and what you might find out is even as likable as he seems when that mask drops, not so likable.
1: Yeah. I I guess we'll, we'll see if, if Andrew Tate fits that or maybe he will, maybe he won't. Um, as, as we end off, I just, I just wanted to ask you quickly about Amway because I actually had some experience with this in Richmond, Virginia. I went to school at the university of Richmond and one of my close friends, uh, actually was looped into two meetings with them, like initial meetings at the Doubletree hotel. I believe it was by two separate people. And you know, where I, I, we were seniors at the time. So we're in that mindset, like college athletes, like our our baseball career is coming to a close. Like we want to make money. We want to start a career. And so I think a lot of that had to do uh, with my friend going to these initial meetings, but also the intention wasn't clear. Cause like you were saying, like the the full picture of Amway was not shown to him at the beginning. And he ended up going to these meetings and then, and then, we spoke about it and then we researched what we ended up going down the rabbit hole of like figuring out like this is Amway because of like the connections with the Double Tree Hotel and like other people posting on forums. And so I learned a lot about it because of my friend. And then I had someone who I went to school with who I wasn't really friends with but i knew who he was and he messaged me on facebook saying like oh my god like hey zach it's been so long like we should catch up someone who i spoke to i think once drunk at a college party like not someone i would catch up with and i went to his facebook profile just to check him out and i saw like all this all these posts about like diamond level and i was like oh fuck like I remember when we went down this rabbit hole for Amway in college, like diamond level was one of the things. And so I ended up going through his Facebook profile and like everything is like trips with people for different levels of Amway and like different events and conferences. And because of my friend, like I ended up putting the pieces together and like not getting on the phone with him. And then I also had another interaction uh in a Nordstrom rack that may or may or may not have been Amway when I was just like shopping and some guy like very similarly to my friend came up to him out of nowhere and was like, are you happy with your life? Basically, like, what do you want to like? Do you want to make some extra money? Like, safe shopping, Zach. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was I was with a girl I was dating at the time and and I was just like I just had the weirdest inner like some dude just I'm looking at peacoats and some guys like, are you happy? And I'm like, yeah, I guess like, I don't know. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask you like it, briefly, if you could talk about Amway and the, the cult like activity that goes on in some of these multi-level marketing schemes, because that was a, a pleasant surprise in the book, the going through the chapter on Amway. Cause I was not expecting that at all to be in a cult book. But then when I look back on it and like the things that I researched on it, 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 it does seem to have a lot of overlap. Yeah, well,
0: uh, you know, Amway has been called Scamway. And in my opinion, that's what it is. It's a scam because multi-level marketing is more about recruitment of people into the plan, the business plan, than it is about the product. The product, in my opinion, is just a way of keeping it from being labeled a pyramid scheme. So the people that get in early are the people at the top or the people that make diamond that are the people that make money the overwhelming majority of people are not going to make money or they are going to lose money and and the federal trade commission requires multi-level marketing groups to in some way advise people what is the average income of somebody that is a participant or a distributor in your in your scheme and what you're going to see is really low numbers you would be better spending your time as an employee of Walmart or McDonald's than working for a multi-level marketing scheme because the odds are against Mm. you. I mean, uh, probably uh, the odds are are not that much better than just playing the slots in Vegas. Do you think you're gonna make a fortune playing the slots? I mean, the deck is stacked. You're not gonna make money. The Mm. house is gonna make the money. So what you see in these multi-level marketing schemes is a use of coercive persuasion influence techniques, thought reform techniques that can be identified, in which they isolate people, bombard them in seminars and meetings, they socially isolate people, your Amway people become your your social... Uh, you you know your 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 social interaction you you it's dominated by other people that are in Amway. This is frequently the story. I've done a number of interventions to get people out of Amway. So you have to ask yourself: mm. Am I making money? Uh, and how many distributors are there in my zip code? And does does my upline care? Does my upline care about such basic yeah. things as market saturation? I mean, if you're constantly increasing the amount of distributors in a given area, there's less money for everybody to make. McDonald's would never put five McDonald's on the same block. They have more respect for their franchise holders and they want them to make money. Amway, in my opinion, is all about recruitment. You recruit people, same thing with the overwhelming majority, if not all, multi-level marketing. I, I did the uh, uh, one documentary about Lululemon, and Lululemon uh, is a multi-level marketing scheme. Their product are colorful leggings, and their target is uh, stay-at-home moms, and many of them Mormons mm. uh, because the leaders, the founders, are are involved in the Mormon Church. So, so they thought that they could try to sell this to other Mormons using their their mormon affinity as a a point to say to sell people on and and that's what's called affinity fraud so in my opinion multi-level marketing bad bad idea look at the numbers what is the income of the average distributor they have to disclose that and what is it really all about is it about recruiting people into the business plan or is it about the product itself typically it's all about recruitment it's all about the distributors buying the product in a disproportionate amount, so it's uh, it's not good. And and the the fingerprints of of undue influence and manipulating people are all over the place regarding the way in which they sell, the way in which they bring people in, and uh, the way in which they keep them in.
1: Yeah, uh, the the entire chapter where you have the the Amway intervention with the college kid and his dad, I believe it was his dad that came to you first, right, for that intervention. And, you know, I I was thinking like that could have easily been me if my friend hadn't, gone through that experience first. And then we didn't try to figure out like what the hell this meeting was at this hotel and ended up, you know, going down this vortex and eventually found Amway and, and put together the dots. But uh, like, you know, this kid seemed really smart and he got into this scheme and and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's humbling to, to read about because it, it, does seem like it really can be anyone, and and thank thank you again so much for taking the time to to hop on the podcast. This has been an absolute blast, super insightful. Um, people need to go check out every example in more detail that we spoke about on the podcast. That's in the book, plus like dozens of other examples that you guys are going to want to read. If, if you have any if any part of this podcast interested you in any way, y- you guys will definitely want to check out the book. So, so thank you again, Rick, for taking the time to come on the show. And then I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.